Are you all right? The bubbles tickle my... Tchaikovsky! Detente can be beautiful. This is no time to be discussing politics. Welcome to episode 31 of Central Intelligence Cinema. Today, Jason and I take off into the blimp that is our review of A View to a Kill. Grab a cocktail, maybe six, because uh, this part one alone is massive. So, uh, Pierce, if you could please hit me with that extra special Bond theme. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. <laughs> Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Sol. Bond. James Bond. Ethan Hunt. Felix Leiter. Ilya Kuriaki. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Just remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, right on schedule, <laughs> it's the Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And welcome back to the Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast, the spy movie podcast that is guaranteed to tickle your Tchaikovsky. Hello. 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 <laughs> How's it going, Jason? Splendidly. How it's, are you today, Ben? I'm I'm doing pretty good. We're uh, we're here early because we've got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> Boy, here, do we ever! <laughs> here at the at the undisclosed location. Thankfully, it's nice and cool still. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, anyway, welcome back. We have got one heck of a review coming at you today. A view to a kill, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Woofta. <laughs> Wow. Wow. (laughs) It's quite a movie, you know. It's crazy. It's crazy how long this movie (laughs) is. It's not even that long. It just feels really long. It's like a time travel (laughs) where it's two hours actual, but it's like four when you watch it. It's crazy. Indeed. It really does. (laughs) I mean, this Uh, this could literally have been the 14th and 15th. Official James Bond movie. <laughs> it really and is. And yet they only would have been an hour long. They just both would have felt like they were two hours long. <laughs> Indeed. But uh, yeah, we're here to get into it. It's a uh, man. <laughs> I'm beside myself. But I am excited because I get to play uh, Defender and, <laughs> and you get to play Attack. <laughs> it's almost always a role that you end up playing in a James Bond movie review. I suppose, but... It's because they're so precious to you, and they're they not are. as precious to me. They are. You know, if, if you if we were doing Star Wars movies or right. superhero movies, then I'd be attacking and yeah. you'd be defending. Well, no, because they're all really good, as opposed to James Bond oh, movies, which mostly I suck. I see. So, um, <clears throat> thank you. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess we should. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. Should we just uh, get into this let's, sucker? Let's get into it. This man has a secret plan. For which each of you will pay me $100 million. And a secret weapon. We're not sure about her. Name's Mayday. 
someone will take care of you. Oh, you'll uh, see to that personally, will you? There's only one man who can stop them. Roger Moore is James Bond, 007, with Tanya Roberts, Grace Jones, and Christopher Walken. (laughs) Has James Bond finally met his match? Find out this summer in A View to a Kill. Title song performed by Duran Duran. Okay, A View to a Kill, the 14th official James Bond film, released in 1985, directed by John Glenn of John fucking Glenn fame. But not of going into space as the third man to go into space fame. That's a different thing. Yeah, that's a different John Glenn. Point of pride moment for me, John Glenn edited on Her Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. Uh, however, that duty was left to Peter Davies this time around, who also cut Octopussy, The Living Daylights, and Wham! in China, the documentary. Wake me up before you go, go. That's all I'm gonna sing, cause it's a no-no. What? <laughs> so, yeah. And then uh, writing credit goes to Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson, which is basically the 80s version of Purvis and Wade. I don't know. I, I think they just threw the kitchen sink at the sucker. This it's almost just, it almost feels like it was a Mission Impossible type movie. It's like we got a truck stunt, we got a blimp stunt, we got a Eiffel Tower stunt. Now let's write a movie around it. <laughs> it really kind of feels that and way. And let's it's, write the worst movie we could possibly write around no. it because we got to fit the stunt. Dude, they had to fit the stunts into this thing, and I think that severely affected. You're probably the level right. of what the story because was. the stunts themselves are actually quite impressive they on a lot on a lot in a many different areas on this movie. It's just it's nuts, and I also know too that there are leftover ideas from Octopussy that made it into this. Okay, so they just they're like, well, we didn't use it there. Let's just cram it in here, right. and instead of instead of bumblebees, we'll make them butterflies. And the butterflies will have a little stinging thing on them. Right. You know, like... Yeah, you know... (laughs) Yeah, that's all I have to say. Okay, okay. Well, uh, the director of photography was Alan Hume. He worked on Octopussy for Your Eyes Only and a little independent sci-fi flick called Return of the Jedi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he kind of knows what he's doing. And yeah, on the production side, I mean, everything is, is great. Even the music was pretty decent yeah i mean they, you know, a lot of good integration of the theme song that was what stuck out to me because for me that's a big deal on bond movies is yes. that they is that they integrate that theme song into the score and john barry just knows what to do he knows and it just works really well especially i think about during the uh scene where bond rescues stacy out of the burning building and they horns come out like playing the mm-hmm. theme song to a view to a kill and it kind of saves that scene from being <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> in a lot of ways yeah. so now is it would it, as we're talking about music would you say it's fair to say that the music video for a view to a kill was actually a better version of the movie than the movie was <laughs> because it has some of the stunts in it it doesn't have uh the, it's also a does lot it have shorter. the mayday does it have the mayday uh, uh, parachute uh, jump yes. i haven't watched it in a while i've uh, Yes, I believe it does. <laughs> I, I haven't watched it for a long time either. But yeah. I just remember it being an incredibly good video at a time when MTV was actually turning out pretty bad ones on the regular because yeah. there were so many. And I just started thinking, even Simon the Bond might have been a better James Bond on this. No. I don't know. No. I don't know. No. <laughs> 
I'm team Pro- Raj. I'm team Raj. Talking Raja. bear. Jason is talking bear. <laughs> so by the numbers, uh, the budget for this movie was $30 million, which is roughly $80 million in today's numbers. The movie made a little over $152 million worldwide at the box office, which is like $412 million adjusted for inflation. So it, eh. Not like it did poorly. No, not at all. Um, you know, it's it's Roger's last one, so you can expect a little bit of trail off. Although, man, they certainly went all out. I mean, for a budget of thirty million, there's certainly a hell of a lot in here. There absolutely is. You know, they spent at least like seven million on that car that split in half, <laughs> <laughs> and probably like two million to get France to look the other way while they took a parachuter off the top of the Eiffel oh Tower. My God. Well, there's an interesting story about that, actually. I wonder if we'll hear about that story. I, I, you may just hear about that story later. I know, did if you have you just gotta keep listening to Central <laughs> Intelligence Cinema Podcast available at all podcast outlets. <laughs> did you get any kind of Superman 2 deja vu when you were watching some of those scenes in the Eiffel Tower? Especially the elevator? Yeah, that's right, because he he pushes the elevator, the elevator back all, up. The, all the way out through the tunnel and into outer space. Right. Because it has the that's it's right, because it has a bomb on it. That's right. That's right. Wow. I haven't thought about that in a while. I just I, as I saw Roger jumping on top. Yes. Of the elevator. I just kept thinking of that dummy Superman of Christopher Reeve that they had hanging on the <laughs> elevator going up uh-huh. as if he was flying it, but he wasn't really because he wasn't really Superman. He wasn't really Superman. Well, Christopher Reeve was, but the dummy was not. In, indeed. Indeed. Um, <laughs> so, as far as getting into the uh, Bond and the Bond girls and everyone. So who every, played James Bond in this everybody, one? Well, that would be Sir Roger Moore. Oh, has he Sir, been in these before? Or is this his first A few turn? times. He's, he's, he's done a few of these. He did seem a little... I don't know. Gray around the gills? <laughs> He's seasoned. He's well seasoned. Like a go. like a good cast iron pan. Well, He's well seasoned. <laughs> I was gonna say fine wine, but I can't beat cast iron pan. That's fantastic. <laughs> um I do think the tanning caught up with him a scotch. Oof-da. A little right? bit. The other thing about this is, too, is I did find out, I didn't realize this, I should have, but uh, apparently Roger Moore had a facelift very, almost right before this movie started filming, like months before this movie. Really? Which sort of tracks, given he's always got that wide-eyed look in this movie. Well, well, well. You know, there's there's somebody on Twitter that uh, that does well Wednesdays. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> where, where he'll, every Wednesday they post this video montage of Roger Moore saying well at the beginning of <laughs> like a dozen different sentences in all of his movies because he's the king of well, well, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> and saying Sinjin Smythe. That is okay. I know we're getting way ahead of everything, but I. That is definitely an English thing that somebody needs to educate me on because the whole fact that it's actually St. John Smythe, mm-hmm. but it's pronounced Sinjin Smythe, James Sinjin Smythe. And he corrects people frequently. Over and over. Because <laughs> it keep and then everybody pauses on it, which is hilarious. I know. Everybody- this is Mr. Smythe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody seems to know, and he's like, Sinjin Smythe. So if any of our tens of listeners out there in the UK can explain that to us. Yes, I would do. absolutely please love. Do. Please give me an email at uh, cicdeaddrop at gmail.com. Please. Or or hit me up on Twitter or something, which is uh, at CIC Spy Pod. Let me know, because I really don't know the history of that. And I had too much on my plate to look up 
what the hell that is. If it is even a thing. If it's even a thing, I mean, or if they just sort of made it up then, or or maybe it's just like such old world England that only a man is well seasoned as Roger Moore would actually know what it means. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So the other characters, we've got uh Stacy Sutton played by Tanya Roberts. <sighs> I mean, now let me I'll say this. Now we're gonna disagree on where we place this Bond movie in the list of in the rankings. But as far as being a Bond girl goes, Tanya Roberts is probably at the bottom of my list. I cannot argue with you. That, I just, between the acting and I'm going to hear her screaming in my sleep after this Oh, the screaming, all I can hear is, James, don't leave me! James! It's just over and over. I'm like, did, did John Glenn seriously just ask her to... To scream like that over and over again? Or was that just like, well, that's that's what I should be doing, right? I think we have a Barbara Bach situation here where the producers mm. wanted something and the director had to work with it. Yeah. Except that Barbara Bach is Barbara Bach and Tanya Roberts is Tanya Roberts. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah. I think they just wanted, they wanted this movie to be a very American adventure. Yes. A very American adventure and Tanya Roberts... Kind of screams American, <laughs> literally. Okay, well, <laughs> quite you know, literally. Looking at it that way, you're not wrong at yeah. all. Uh, also, of course, we've got Mayday, played by uh, Grace Jones, who I actually really love in this movie, even if her acting might not always be amazing. Um, she's just she's she's fully invested in the character. Indeed, I mean that's that's the one thing you can say about Grace Jones. She is fully invested and. Her physicality, I think, makes up for maybe some of her acting chops, perhaps. Agreed. Then we have uh, quite possibly my favorite of of this movie is uh, Pola Ivanova, played by Fiona Fullerton. And a fun fact about her, uh, she actually beat out Miriam Diabo for the role of Pola in this film. Um, however, two years later, of course, Miriam landed the main Bond girl role in the uh, Living Daylight. So, so that worked out better for her. That worked out better for everyone because Lord knows I wouldn't want to see Fiona Fullerton be in the Living Daylights. No. That would not have been a good matchup. Uh, no, you, somebody, no. Somebody as blonde and buxom as Fiona Fullerton would not pair well against... Uh, no, not against Timothy Dalton. Against Timmy. No, I think... Well, you know what? It's funny... I, Timothy Dalton, <laughs> I feel like he grounded the Bond films after they'd gotten so ridiculous by yes. the end of the Moore era. I don't think you could have had a character like, or an actress like Fiona Fullerton in that role because it would have hearkened back to those days. Right. And I don't think he would have played as well on that no, one. You, you no. You need someone who's, let's face it, everybody wants to look at Timothy Dalton. He's a handsome fella. He's a handsome gentleman. And you cannot have someone more attractive than him necessarily in your face on the screen because then his bond doesn't work at all i I suppose not although miriam diabo is (laughs) i'm not i'm just saying she is more classically beautiful rather than bond girl in your face beautiful right right and then jenny flex my favorite played by allison duty Yes. Yes. <laughs> if she'd slept with Bond in this movie, then she would have actually slept with two James Bonds in movies, if you think about it. Indeed, indeed. Um, of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade fame. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Allison Duty. Uh, and then we have uh, Kimberly Jones, played by two-time Bond girl, 
Mary Staven, who is also one of Octopussy's hench women. This is the blonde in the in the uh, the Berg the, Marine. <laughs> yes, the Berg, the Berg Marine. Yes, that would be her. The uh, Shag Marine. <laughs> the Shag Marine. So yeah, um, other major characters, of course, Max Zorin, played by. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken, who sells it. I mean, need I say more? It's it's crazy. It's- <laughs> Everyone else phoning in the performances, but not 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 Chris. No. Bringing his A game. <laughs> he brought more than his I mean, he kind of steals the show he, in every he scene. He absolutely and, does. For you know, yes, he's weird as hell in this, and he makes some really interesting choices as far as how he pronounces his dialogue. Schedule. But, but you can't you can't not listen to him. You can't take your eyes off That's him. That's because he's the only compelling character in the entire movie. <laughs> he is 100% Max Zorn in every scene. He's not Roger Moore playing a parody of Roger Moore playing right. James Bond. He's not, you know, Grace Jones in there trying to be and biting at things. Right, right, right. And he's not a Bond girl who's just being a Bond girl. Right. He's like, I'm a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to blow shit up. So... Originally, this role was intended for David Bowie, who turned down the role. And the conventional answer for why he turned down the role was that it interfered with his schedule on Labyrinth. However, there's a more fabled story as well that apparently, according to writer Dylan Jones, who heard the anecdote from acclaimed author Hanif Karishi, who in turn heard it from Bowie. So, guy who heard it from a guy who heard it from the guy. So, take that with a grain of salt. But anyway, apparently... Supposedly, Bowie took to the secluded mountains of Switzerland years before A View to a Kill's production to escape his outsized fame hiding out in a remote chalet. Only said chalet was not remote enough to stop his neighbor, Roger Moore, from unintentionally ruining Bowie's self-isolation by dropping in for tea, whiskey, and endless stories about playing the campiest, funniest version of Bond. The story goes that Moore accidentally sabotaged Bowie's attempts at self-care by regaling him with stories of his years playing Bond over drinks. Uh, These all-night drinking sessions saw Bowie eventually hiding from his neighbor (laughs) by the end of his stay in Switzerland, and as such, the star was supposedly unable to face the prospect of working with him a decade later. Hmm. Now, take that for what you will. Hmm. I think it sounds more like urban legend than the truth. I have a hard time believing that David Bowie couldn't owe up to, or not even owe up to, just... Or maybe he just didn't want to deal with <laughs> with Roger. I don't know. You know, uh, it could be true. I'm sure, like all urban legends, there's probably some truth to it. Right. I don't feel like David Bowie was the sort of person that would really give two shits about that. Yeah. Not that I know him or anything. Right. But to me, it seems like maybe the role was not interesting enough for him to actually want to take it. Well, and I did, after I was done finding this for my notes and after i had already sort of locked in my notes i found another story that said that he hated the script so who knows yeah who knows what why he turned it down i honestly think that the movie is probably better off for it i agree he would have been completely wasted he would have been completely wasted and he would have taken you out of the movie completely because he's david friggin bowie yeah exactly and so you wouldn't be looking at it would be really hard to see him as a villain and you just see him as David Bowie right. being David Bowie, which is funny too, because even even Christopher Walken 
has this blonde hair, a very Let's Dance-ish. Oh, yeah. They were clearly trying to mold him in that capacity. Right. You know, and it's funny. I mean, this is Christopher Walken, what, four or five years after the Academy Award. Mm-hmm. He'd done The Dead Zone. Right. He was done Brainstorm. So, I mean, he was doing these... Th- it was pre-Walken Walken. He was, right. still, was, before, he was still an actor right. who made bef- some interesting dialogue choices. <laughs> he he hadn't fully leaned into the whole Walkenness of himself. Right. He was, he was not quite Christopher Walken in every movie. Right. He was just an actor. He was an actor playing a Bond villain, which I think he did rem- remarkably well. And yeah. You know, this dovetails back into our conversation from way back in Skyfall, mm-hmm. where I posited that perhaps Silva's character was actually <laughs> Max, who pulled himself out of San Francisco Bay right. and, and reinvented himself elsewhere. <laughs> but I only say that because... Both of them had ridiculously blonde hair. Yes. And both of them are, in my mind, the two best Bond villains in the entire franchise. There you go. For the same reason. They both dove into the role. They became the Bond villains, Mm -hmm. regardless of what was going on around them. Right. And they sold it. And I've said it before on every Bond movie, it's only as good as its villain. And And if the villain is not believable, the movie's terrible. Well... This movie, face it, if this movie had had anybody that wasn't Christopher Walken as the bad guy that didn't put the level of effort. That's true. This would have been super hard to get through. That's true. (laughs) I was just, actually, I was more thinking about Bond movies with less than spectacular villains. And I was trying to think of if I considered that movie to be a lower tier movie. Like Quantum of Solace, for for example. I really like Quantum of Solace. I think Mr. Green is fine. See, a lot of people bag on him. A lot of people say that he's not compelling enough or that he's not uh, I don't think his, sort of alpha enough or something. I think he, because he's trying to play kind of a passive aggressive. Right. He's more weaselly. Yeah. You know, his his plot is more important than him right. in that particular film. Yeah. But when you look at like, because I mean, like The Living Daylights. Yes. None that of the, one, nothing felt very compelling in that one at all. True. And Timothy carried that movie on his shoulders yeah, because of it. Well, and so did John Reese davies But John, well, yeah. Who there's not for, a bad movie with John Reese davies Exactly. But I mean, it, what it all comes down to, even in Goldfinger, mm-hmm. granted, a lot of his lines were they like they were dubbed over and right, he was right. reading phonetically because he didn't really speak yes. English. But he had charisma. He had charisma, he had poise. You felt like it was an adversary rather than just something that Bond was chasing. And that's kind of my core dislike about this movie, is it just feels like Bond is chasing everything. Mm-hmm. You just you have a compelling villain that keeps you interested in it, but at the end mm-hmm. of the day, this plot is basically Superman the movie. <laughs> without nuclear weapons, right? It, it, yeah. I mean, we'll get into it, just all the science in this, or pseudoscience yeah, in this movie. Say, science with air with quotes. Big air quotes. Um, but anyway, anyway who the hell to, else is in this damn movie so we can move on? All right, then. Well, the other people in this movie, uh, once again, Desmond Llewellyn is back as Q. That last scene with Q, I'm just going to say. So, so peeping Tom. And Creeper. Creeper. The faces he was oh, making. Oh, I know, I, I know. Mean, he was he was 100% Q. I do like how he gets, you know, his, his ass slapped a little by M. He's like, Spare selection cue, just get on with it right. for Christ. Like I'm I've been doing this for so long. Well, and honestly, like if you're in the editing room and that's the take you go with, like, yeah, go with the super ultra creepy peeping Tom. John Glenn's like, you have to look interested in what you're doing, but not too interested. Right. And that was the best that he could get. <laughs> also, just I know I'm 
we're darting all over the place here, but going back to editing, this movie is edited so much like a John Glenn edited film. Clearly, John was sitting over the shoulders mm. and telling him what to do because there are so many scenes that literally cut to the next scene with no transition whatsoever. Yes. Like just, I think about when uh, they cut to the the boardroom meeting in the blimp. It yeah, it's is literally so a hard just, cut from the... It's a hard cut from the horse track. Right. And it's a cut of two scenes with the same character right. in it. It's literally like a hard cut from a TV show, like Malcolm in the Middle. Right. And they're going to a flashback or something, right? right? It's just so abrupt and, and hard, and it barely works. I'm not going to argue with you on it. Ugh. That whole scene kind of threw me. I'm like, how did Max get there? He was just right. He the- was just at the horse track. Now he's in a suit in a blimp. We don't even know he's in a blimp. We yeah, you don't even know that. Which yet. I think is the whole reason they did that. Right. Where do how do you transition from there to there? That's probably the whole reason. Away. Right. If you hard cut that, then you're not looking. to... Oh, they're in the. You know, you wouldn't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. All you got to do is throw a fade or a wipe or something in there to let you know you were going from one thing to another. Right. You know. <laughs> Because if you took all the fades and wipes out of Star Wars, it's all hard cuts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Indeed. So, uh, Lois Maxwell is back as Money Penny, and uh, she doesn't have a whole lot to do, although it was fun seeing her at the the racetrack. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) She's quite tenured at this point as well. Yes. With, uh, you know, so she kind of fits Roger in that respect. Absolutely. Um, Robert Brown is back as M. Walter Gattel is back as... Gogol, which I kind of love. Absolutely. I love Gogol, and he's pretty great in this movie, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, as a recurring character, he's probably one of my favorites. Yes. And then uh, Tibbet, or Sir, I should I should be more respectful, Sir Godfrey Tibbet. Played by John Steed. Played by John Steed, Patrick <laughs> McNee. So, uh, and man, he just gets the, the shit end of the stick, man. Yeah, <laughs> a guy, when you see a guy like Patrick McNee getting turned into comedy relief, it Ugh. really, it really kind of bothered me a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. he never had a huge career here in the States. Right. But I know he's more of a revered actor in the UK. Yeah. And you know, aside from the Avengers, he he was the one of the the main bad guy in Battlestar Galactica, the original one. Did the voiceover and right. stuff like that. So I mean, I've known about this guy forever, but and I forgot he was in this. So when I'm watching, I'm like, oh, this should be interesting. We've got John Cena. Je- oh no, he's not John Cena. <laughs> oh, this. No, he no is, wonder he's not wearing a bowler hat. He oh, is ooh. the he is the Bond whipping boy. He is. I uh, and it's rough. They take it to a level that I feel like was. Just too much. Just too much. Just too much. <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun watching him get all the like. <laughs> he's like, "What is what? What do I tell them if if they ask me why I'm going into town? Tell them you got to wash the car." And then he like throws the dirty water back <laughs> on the car. <laughs> all right. Well, that's about enough of that. Should we get into the actual movie here? Okay. Okay, the pre-title sequence. So, Bond is uh, skiing in Siberia, like you do. Well, his stunt double is, anyway. Um, (laughs) He's skiing on one ski! (laughs) Uh, If one of our tens of listeners can identify that one. Stickers. Stickers. Maybe even a keychain. Yeah. And I know somebody, I know a listener that knows that reference. So get on it, son. So get or on it, son. Sis. But anyway, honestly, I think he looks pretty good in this in this scene. Like and and the other part about it is 
That is the bougiest ski outfit I've ever seen. No doubt. Like the gloves are kind of dainty and he's got all the fur around the hood. Right, right. And it's pure white. It it's pretty like like he's dripping. Like <laughs> like to what the young kids say, they say dripping when you're wearing really expensive clothing. You see it's they got they call it drip. That's that's what I've heard in my research. <laughs> all I kept thinking was he looked like Snowdrop from G.I. Joe. But <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and can is... we and can we take a minute to talk about the wonderful Russian soldiers with their three hundred dollar Revo ski? sunglasses <laughs> right you know those guys looked those guys look so not russian oh so not russian they would never the russian kgb would never afford them that nice of of they, gear exactly <laughs> you don't get skis you get the planks from uh, from boards from <laughs> right. old building over here you could use them you figure it out you're a russian you figure these what, things you out. want olin marks no 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 you no, cut no, the no, skis no. yourself with, no, it, with wood exactly. get the planks of wood you have twine <laughs> you can tie around boots no you don't get ski boots you have Good, fine Russian military boots. All you need to have. <laughs> so anyway, Bond uses this little miniature Geiger counter to uh, locate the body of uh, fellow agent 003, and he retrieves a microchip hidden in a locket around the guy's neck. Microchip. Microchip. That huh? might that might have to be added to our. <laughs> I, I think we can. Find, I think we can put microchip under microfilm. But yes. this one didn't actually have any information on it. No, it was just an actual. It microchip. was just an actual microchip, so it's a little less annoying. Right. Right. <laughs> is this the first time a 003 has died in a Bond movie? Do you know? I'm honestly not sure. I know that there's been a six. Well, there has been a six in Goldeneye. Right. Uh. <laughs> I'm just curious. I mean, if. It feels like obviously never a 007. Well, not until the most recent movie. But um, <sighs> don't get me started. I don't. I don't know how many numbers they've thrown across with dead doubles. Right. I know there's been at least three that I can think of. So probably the first time on a three. I'm just curious. It might be the first time on the three. So the Russians find him and he's off on his skis until then he nabs a snowmobile. Well, you don't, you're, you're cutting out the whole thing where the ski gets shot off. Hence my, uh, Oh, cause then he's on one ski. ski. That's that, right. That stunt looked terrifying. They literally blew that ski up under the skiing stunt. Double. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that could have gone so bad. So, so wrong, quickly. So wrongly. And then, the other thing about that stunt, too, is, well, once he actually gets on the snowmobile, is how difficult it is for him to dislodge that the other, other ski. ski. Now, I am a skier, and normally they should not, it should not be that difficult for your skis to pop off. They're designed to pop off when you crash so that right. you don't you break your leg. Break your damn leg. And so that was clearly set up for a stunt person who was trying not to have well, that get accidentally you know because of rigorous skiing or whatever right. but i still, suspect something about the one ski thing they must have reinforced it in some capacity right and uh, kudos to that stunt double seriously that shit looked shaky as hell like when he was trying to knock that thing off his foot i was like is he like i wonder how many times they had to do this i feel like it was a one take and that was it yeah yeah, probably given how much trouble he did have. Yeah, because if they'd had other shots where it came off more easily, they would have used those. Right. So the pursuing helicopter then hits the snowmobile and sends Bond flying off of it, but he finds one of the skis from it uh, and remember, uses it as a snowboard. Remember when snowboarding was a novelty? Yeah. 
right? Like 1985, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this puts this, I have a point of contention with this because even more than a skier, I am a snowboarder. And this annoyed the crap out of me this next moment where suddenly Bond magically is able to go uphill, go uh-huh. up an incline and knock do a little over, yep. 180 air and knock the Russian guys and then go back down and then go the other way. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Remember it, when it, snowboarding was a novelty? <laughs> <laughs> That's truly all they're doing here. No, do you know? Was I, I didn't see anything uh, when I was kind of looking around for trivia. Mm-hmm. Grant, I could have dug a little harder, but do you know if that was anybody that was a famous snowboarder that was doing that stuff? Because I, I don't not. think it was the same stunt guy. I think the stunt guy stopped at Snowmobile. I mean, given it was 1985, I wouldn't even be surprised if it was Tim Burton, the guy who initially this founded is, Tim or uh, Burton Snowboards. But I'll have to I'm look thinking. it up. You know, it's funny that Actually. Tim Burton guy also did some movies, didn't he? <laughs> In fact, if I recall, he has a cartoon with a skeleton guy who actually has a snowboard. Well, there you go. I never put those two together. Case closed. Gong gong. <laughs> I also like how there was the, uh, they were trying to get you to believe that those two hooks that attached it to the snowmobile were how his boot feet were staying in Right, it. right. Like those are just perfectly aligned right. bindings to, to <laughs> stick his feet into like, oh yeah, he'll he'll just stick like glue on the board. Sure. And how, and how about that song, huh? Oh, Okay. Even when this movie came out, I cringed. When I was, I mean, 1985, I was probably 11. I was 11 when this movie came out. And even then I cringed at the Beach Boys cue. And listening to it now, it might have actually worked if they actually had the Beach Boys version of right, it. Right, Instead of a bad cover. Ugh. I'll uh, tell you, you get anyway. $3 million for a Peugeot that gets cut in half, but you can't afford a Beach Boys song. And you're paying Monty Norman all that money for the theme song. Yeah, I mean, you might as well do something with it. Not yeah. like there was any other real... Spill out the dosh and yeah. get the real one, Hell, man. you should have got Duran Duran to do it. At least it would have been a novelty right? at that then point. Then it would have been kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd want to listen to that. That's a cover I'd, I'd have on my iPod right now. Yeah. So anyway, uh, back to the movie. So... <laughs> So Bond then shoots. He's pursued by the helicopter, and then he he's kind of runs and scatters behind a, a piece of snow. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. surprisingly, that military grade ammunition can't get through a yeah. snowbank, right? So so then he shoots a flare into the cabin of the helicopter, and it sends the sends a helicopter into the side of an iceberg, and boom, case closed. <laughs> thank, thank God. <laughs> so from here, he finds the uh, the. Handy dandy iceberg with a Union Jack symbol on the uh, canopy of it. The Shag Marine, baby. The Shag Marine. And uh, gets in it with Kimberly Jones. Now, I will say real quick, did you notice how limber the gentleman who was supposed to be James Bond was as he made his way to the Shag Marine? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have lots to say about the stunt team on this, this movie if you want. So he gets in with Kimberly Jones and he's like, and one microchip. And they break out the champagne. I love, he doesn't even, I know that ski boots are a pain in the ass to get out of. (laughs) <laughs> and I really wanted to, especially given his tenured age in this movie, I would have been like, can you help an old man off with these boots <laughs> or something? Can you help an old man off? 
With these boots. <laughs> yes, there we go. <laughs> and then, of course, ending with, oh, James. <laughs> That's another Rogerism. I'm trying to remember when that started. If that was Octopussy, that, that the first instance of Oh, James happened. Hmm. No, actually, there's one in The Spy Who Loved Me in the pre-title sequence. Yes, there is. It's, it's literally the opening line. Yes. <laughs> so there should be Oh, James Thursdays on Twitter? There should be. There should be. <laughs> I wish I would have made a button for that. I didn't make a button for that. I only made a button for the other recurring sound thing that happens in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so then we get into the title graphics and, ooh, (laughs) ooh, Ooh. (laughs) the not the best. The not the greatest. I've Uh, seen a lot of Bond movies. These are not the best credits. You know, and they're so known for them and Maurice Bender... Must have been on a bender the night before working on these titles because I'm telling you, I told you this. I told you this when I was watching the movies. Mm -hmm. It's like they gave a 14 year old boy access to a set camera (laughs) with a bunch of UV paint, a few UV lamps, and a bunch of supermodels and said, Go make the beginning of this movie. (laughs) And he had two days to do it. And he spent like a day and a half putting paint on the supermodels with his hands. Oh, definitely with his hands. (laughs) And then spent the last 12 hours of it trying to shoot this thing with them flipping and jiggling as much as possible. Yeah, it's... It's bad. It's really bad. And given the music that's backing it, it's it's almost a crime. It is kind of because, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, this is one of our favorite theme songs of all time. It is. And to do that with it, it's just so... It's so I, I don't, fucking 80s. Exactly. I kind of wonder if they were like, well, how can we make this super current? Yes. And by current, they meant 80s. Mm-hmm. And just, well, just make it all neon and... Look how they it, dressed Roger. Yeah. And it's just so... But it's just so... Even the production value feels bad. It really... And that's why I'm saying it feels like a 14-year-old with one camera. Yeah. You know, I've seen... And I, I've seen all of them. There are some that are better than others, obviously. Yes. But even back in the Roger Moore days, there are much better ones. Way than that better, one. yes, absolutely. So I'm guessing they ran out of money at the end of that, <laughs> or interest. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so so that's that. So getting into Act One, though, uh, we get back and uh, we're in uh, London in M's office, and we get a little fun chit chat with Money Penny and her massive hat. Because uh, <laughs> she's going to be going off to the races, and we'll soon find out about that. But uh, Bond goes in, and uh, we see Q's new little surveillance peeping Tom device. <laughs> Dog robot. And then quickly the conversation shifts because you. Now I do like it, almost kind of feels like M is just barely tolerating Q's. Absolutely. Q's like silly little whim of a, of a thing. And well, it, it's like M just like. I've been listening to this shit for 20 <laughs> effing years. Yeah. Get on with it, kid. Get, get it on with it. So then we get into this whole uh, conversation about microchips and that. Oh, let's it, go ahead. Sorry. And I, I'm going to try and abbreviate it because it gets very sciencey. And this is one of the th- problems I have with this movie in general is that they try and get too sciency with it on three different occasions, this one being kind of the first one, where they talk about how all of the microchips in the world, 
if someone was to send out a electromagnetic pulse, it would render the microchips mm-hmm. useless and that the British government had been working on one that was EMP proof and the one that uh, Bond recovered off of 003 was one from the Russians and it was almost identical to the one that... It was identical. Right. It was identical to the one that the British government had been working on, rather. Right. And the, the company that made the chip in Britain had been taken over by Zorin Industries and so M wants Bond to go and investigate Zorin. Can I point out how distressing it is to me that the Minister of Defense for the entirety of the UK didn't know what an EMP was? <laughs> The Ministry of Defense. Correct. And he doesn't know. I mean, everybody expects Bond to know what it is. Well, this is. But you couldn't let the minister have his own little thing going, you know, Bond going, an EMP? And then he goes, yeah, it's 007, an EMP is when you do this, that, or the other. (laughs) Just give that guy a little handout or something. Have M do it. But you know what the (laughs) thing is? Is we're in the age of James Bond movies where. Bond knows everything. He absolutely This does. is one of those ones, this is one of those movies where Bond just seems to know fucking everything for no apparent reason. Well, it's like, it's right. like, I can't remember which one it is where he identifies this really rare butterfly in M's office and M's just like scratching his head like, how the fuck did he know what that was? Right. It's just another one of those type of moments where Bond just seems to know everything. Particularly Roger's Bond. Yes. And yes. I wonder if that was something that Q was going to go out and Roger's like, no, no, I think I won't. <laughs> you know, but it's just disturbing to me that the Minister of Defense for the United <laughs> Kingdom yes, doesn't, doesn't know what an EMP <laughs> is in 1985. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> so anyway, so this is sort of an interesting point. The fact that when the beginning of this investigation starts and M, Moneypenny, and Bond, all of them go to Ascot together... To, to spy on Zorin. Right. It seems kind of obvious. You think? You think the guy <laughs> so in charge just, of, of British intelligence, along with... The greatest spy known to man. Right. And, and, and the assistant, who's been with the head of British intelligence for the last 20 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's going to think anything any of the wiser on. They're all yeah. wearing their top hats. They look like Right, everybody. of course. They look like everyone and else, of course. it's not like M and Bond are the only people in that crowd not pointing the binoculars at the horse race. Right. I know. They're the only people looking the opposite direction. Like, they wouldn't stand out like... Um, Directly at the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love it. This movie just goes right in the face of of any logic and nope they just we're we got a beginning we got a middle we got an end we got four good stunts <laughs> roll with it roger roll, with, roll it. with it i mean honestly i kind of it's kind of one of those things for me i do have love for this movie despite all of its litany of flaws <laughs> and it's it's largely the same reason why i'm starting to like mission impossible 2 more is because it's so batshit crazy that you can't help but just chuckle at it and yeah so anyway i digress so we're at the horse race and at this point bond gets introduced to sir godfrey tibbet who suspects Zorn is cheating because his horse is by far beating all the other horses. And that's also when we get our first look at Mayday. And Tibbet basically knows this agent in France that may have some more information on Zorn and arranges a meeting for Bond to go check that whole thing out. I do like how at the end of that scene that Bond hands his ticket to Moneypenny. Right. He 
clearly he picks the winner. Right, of course. Which I'm laughing because, A, sure, Bond's like, who's the villain? So he must be the one that's he going to win. He must be the one that's going to win. But you know, the odds were probably really, really low. So that ticket couldn't be as big as Lois Maxwell was kind of making out unless he right. got a shit ton of money on it. Right. <laughs> now, I do like in this scene the whole thing where Pegasus kind of gets out of hand and Mayday is the one to sort of... Well, that totally looked like Grace Jones, too. That oh, was, that's with, all her. That is all the, her the, doing the that. kicking horse? Come yeah. on. That's, that's a little frightening. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, again, that's part of the reason why, even though she might have limited acting chops, man, she, she does a She, she does sold a the physical part, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, from here, uh, Bond heads to Paris to meet with the French agent, Aubergine, who is... Pretty over-the-top Frenchy-French. It's kind of like when we were uh, reviewing Mission Impossible 2 and uh, Captain Australia shows oh, up. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> like, Aubergine is is very Frenchy-French. Um, <laughs> anyway, so they're in the restaurant that's halfway up the Eiffel Tower with the singer who seems to be able to sort of bewitch these floating paper butterflies that are all hanging by... Whistling. Uh, yeah, whistling. <laughs> with fishing hooks. This there as they're hanging. And uh yeah, weird French shit. Anyway, um <laughs> we just lost our one French listener. Um anyway, Bond learns that Zorn is gonna be holding his annual horse sale soon, but before he can learn anything else, and they do that actor or whether it's written that way, that they do do a good job of keeping Bond on the edge of learning something for a little while. Because he just sort of goes off. Aubergine just sort of trails off about this, that, and the other, but doesn't ever get to the point. And so Bond is just like, come on, out with the information, right? And and then, of course, that's when uh, the uh, the substitute fishing rod operator steps right. in. <laughs> Who, by the way, is clearly Grace Jones. Right. I mean, there's no other human on earth that would fill that profile that, no that, that, you know that silhouette is clearly grace jones the quote-unquote assassin uh-huh. um so grace jones whips the hook and into aubergine's face and apparently must have poison in it or something because he dies like immediately yeah, instantly and I'm just like, oh, that thing is waving around so ridiculously. It, yeah. They should have been like, you know, the Iron Chef um, chairman. <laughs> <laughs> Sound effects going along with it. Oh, the cuisine. Did, exactly. How did it not kill seven other people while she was trying to aim the super butterfly? How did it not get caught on anything else? Right. <laughs> so anyway, after uh, Aubergine perishes, uh, Bond then pursues the assassin out of the restaurant and around the stairwell of the Eiffel Tower, and she she whips that thing around and it trips Bond, and we get our very first instance of the James Bond Wilhelm scream. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So great. Uh, So anyway, (laughs) that is instance number one. Stay tuned, kids. There's more to come. Uh, so from there, before Bond can get to Mayday, uh, she base jumps off the Eiffel Tower, which like is do. like you do. Now, an interesting story about this, actually. Um, so the stunt person that did the jump actually did it super good on the very first try. And I guess they had other stunt people lined up to possibly do the jump if if the first one didn't work for, for shooting purposes. And... I guess the other stunt guys were like bummed that they didn't get to try it. (laughs) This is true. This is a true story. So a couple days later, they went up there and did it rogue 
Oh no. And they both got fired from from the shoot and it ended up limiting the amount of coverage that Eon was able to get while they were shooting in Paris because you're not supposed to fucking do that well, without that, without That's what I'm saying they <laughs> they had to have spent some bank to get them to let them do that in the first place. Exactly. Because you know how those French people are. <laughs> French. <laughs> They're very protective of their monuments and their history. Right. And they don't want it to be shown in a bad light. Yes. Like, I don't know, a nuclear bomb being pushed through the top of you. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I didn't know that, though. And it, it kind of cracks me up just thinking about a couple of, you know, guys getting drunk like, let's go do it Let's anyway. go do it now. Let's go do it now. Woo! <laughs> so then uh, Bond, well, his stunt double anyway, uh, jumps onto the top of an elevator because you can clearly see that's not it, Bond. Absolutely. Let me, so, <laughs> stunt double 101. You need to make the hair of the stunt double at least look like the hair of the person they're doubling. Because this guy that was doubling Roger had some sort of like curly Huey Lewis kind of thing going on. It was on. a little suspect in this one. And nothing like Roger Moore's hair at all? It might have been the same stunt double, though. We I'm pretty know. sure it was probably his principal stunt double. Yeah, might, maybe, it, maybe it was just like the wind and the and the humidity that day made his hair curl a little i don't, <laughs> I don't know. know i just i could tell the stunt double by the <laughs> hair in every scene yeah so bond gets to the bottom of the eiffel tower per se and <laughs> so and then he steals the taxi i kind of love how he just sort of yanks the guy out and he just sort of loses his balance he Gets in the the car. I forget what kind of car that is. Do you know what kind of car I think that was? was? I couldn't tell if it was a Peugeot or a Citroen, but it was probably one. I of think the it was two. a Peugeot. That's what I was thinking. Um. Anyway, so he tries to follow Mayday's parachute as he whips through downtown Paris, just causing all kinds of chaos. Yes. Now I will say there's a couple pretty great. Well, in particular, the car jump onto the bus. Yes. Is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Like, and the fact that. He was able to, they, they timed all that so well so that he landed on the bus, then was able to drive off of it. And it looks like he really did drive off of it and land. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, immediately the, the top gets lopped off by the uh, the gate bar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, then, then he's suddenly driving the wrong way down the highway. And uh, as he's paying attention to Mayday and not the road, this oncoming car swipes into his back end and chops the back off like it was a Ginsu knife. Yeah, the, like, this, this would never happen in the real world. <laughs> like it chopped it in half, like perfectly, like you were cutting a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like a hot knife through butter, this right. car <laughs> split down the middle, bada boom, bada bing. And there's just no way. There's, I don't care how crappy no French way. cars are built. They're all built on a frame. <laughs> like, what happened to this car? Like, what? There was some, did something happen to this car in a previous? Like, <laughs> what? Anyway, so, and somehow the car still works. Yeah, it's still driving. So, still driving. So he drives the half of the car. You know, continuously until he gets to the bridge where he sees the wedding boat that Mayday lands on. And 
He he jumps down, <laughs> and of course he goes through the roof and right onto the wedding cake. And meanwhile, Mayday jumps onto Zoran's boat and drives away. And and, and then like you see those two chefs or the whatever two chefs with, with the, the knives, knives and the, the giant yeah the cleaver and everything else <laughs> right going right after Bond. Bond out. But the best part the <laughs> best part is as they're driving off in the boat, Zoran and Mayday. Zoran's like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's like <laughs> I know her laugh is so over the top yeah, I just want to see I just want to see walk and look back at her and go what the hell was that <laughs> maybe tone it down just a, I'm laughing about five. maniacally you're like 11 what the hell I like too when he when Bond hands the uh, cake to the to the yeah. Brian congratulations congratulations <laughs> And you know what's even funnier about that is the guy, the stuntman that falls through the window, literally, he went down like he was diving into a pool of water. His arms were on his hips, just like straight down like a torpedo. (laughs) So, and then Bond is seemingly arrested because the next thing that we see is Bond in the car with M getting his ass chewed. Pretty much. Getting his ass chewed out uh, for destroying half of Paris. Uh, he, He mentions that it was... Uh, six million francs, and while violating most of the Napoleonic Code, <laughs> whatever that is. Whatever that is. <laughs> I also had to look it up. I was like, well, how much is six million francs? A million bucks. So it's like a million bucks. So anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which meant it was like, what, 968,000 pounds? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I just love how Bond justifies it by saying, well, I just figured it was more important to find out who the assassin was. Really? It was... <laughs> and how, how'd that work out for you, James? <laughs> it was important enough to destroy half of downtown Paris? And, yeah, and nearly kill a bunch of Parisians <laughs> and ruin somebody's wedding. Now, I, I love bringing this up because we're always fighting over Spectre, but that is how you film car chaos in a downtown environment with lots of people around reacting to it well that's just true. saying that's true but <laughs> still i'll take i'll take any car chase scene from specter over this ridiculous half car uh, driving no no because it was all like it just all felt more in your face vivid with people around like it was actually happening Whereas, whereas, yeah. Every time I watch the Spectre car chase, it feels yeah. like they they clearly just you know roped off the entire half they, of Rome. They did so that there were no people to onlook or react. At least to. they did it at night to give uh, you the impression that it was three o'clock in the morning. People might be asleep. I suppose so. Anyway, I mean, I don't argue. The one, the the, <laughs> the car chase scene at the beginning of Skyfall is that in the bazaar with yes range rover or land rovers crashing into every damn thing in the world that's true you feel like they're stakes right you know but i don't think that thing from specter was about the car the impact as much (laughs) as it was about watching a really badass car driving sideways like it was on a nascar track all right fair enough anyway anyway, we should digress we digress we digress so anyway Bond, at this point, has M sign off on him going to Zoran's stables for the horse sale, since he now knows that the horse sale is coming up. And he's posing as James St. John Smythe, a novice horse dealer, which, again, St. John Smythe equals St. John Smythe. St. John Smythe. It's fun to say, though. It is fun to say. <laughs> the name is Smythe. St. John Smythe. And I just love the fact that it perplexes everybody. <laughs> everyone. Literally everyone he introduces One almost to. feels like Roger's like, I think we should change this character's name, too. <laughs> Why? Well, because it sounds great when I say it. <laughs> of course. 
So they go to Zorin's mansion. Well, Bond goes there with Sir Godfrey. This is when we get to watch Sir Godfrey play the role of St. John St. John, or James St. John Smythe. James St. John Smythe's chauffeur. You just have to say it like Roger would. You'll never forget. St. John Smythe. St. John Smythe. Uh, <laughs> so I just, I do love the verbal abuse. I understand what, what your point is, though, about he's definitely hitting him pretty hard. Yeah, and, and <laughs> continually. Yes. So and they, masochistically, <laughs> one might even oh, say. Yeah. So they arrive at the estate and are met by uh, Scarpine. Or Scarpin? I don't know how that's pronounced. Scarpini? Maybe I don't. E- I don't even know. I don't even know if you actually hear his name said in the in he the movie. Said, he does. Zoran says it once that I can recall, mm-hmm. but it's so muddled, right? That I don't really get the pronunciation. All I know is yeah. Scarface. And Scarface. I thought for a minute. I thought he was a guy that played John Carner in Terminator Two. Oh, <laughs> but he's not. I checked. <laughs> so we'll just call him Scarface we'll for the rest. For the Scarface. Scar. Scar. Scarpine, Scarface, Scarpine. Scarpine. Scarry. We'll call him Scarry. Scarry. Hi, Scarry. <laughs> Scarry's so scary. So, so I do love when when he does meet him at the estate and Bond looks at the uh, at the servants' quarters and he goes, oh, is that the stable? And he's like, no, that's the servants' quarters. <laughs> that's the stable. Pan- pointing to what's clearly the mansion of whatever this property is. Right, like exactly. Castle. Whereas the the servants' quarters looks like a... a like a jail, right? <laughs> like a French jail. <laughs> so, so Scarface takes Bond to the stables, <laughs> where the horses are being shown for sale. While Sir Godfrey stands by the car, and he sees Pegasus arrive with the uh, the horse doctor, and in the process, he follows them, kind of sneaky, sneaky, to the stable. And uh, when the doc and the handler of the horse leave, Sir Godfrey tries to find Pegasus, and he's just suddenly disappeared. Like, Pegasus is suddenly nowhere to be found. Well, it is Pegasus. He probably flew away, right? Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Wait. He's fast. <laughs> the horse is fast. <laughs> so, meanwhile, Bond arrives back at his car, and he finds out from Scarface that <laughs> Zoran would like to meet him at the reception that's happening later on. And that's when Sir Godfrey shows up a little bit late, and, th- and just... Right away, just digging into him already. Like, where have you been? Like, what are you? <laughs> well, and you know, so you, we learn a little bit briefly for ahead of this. Mm-hmm. We learn that the whole reason is they're trying to establish Sinjit Smy as yes. sort of an asshole aristocratic person, right? They're so trying that to it can keep cover, in character, right. right? But man, over the top, just so over the top. Like, you know, talk about playing your your undercover, you know, ID to its hilt. Well, you know, in about uh, five minutes from this scene, but 007 is going to explain the importance of that. Yes, so. yes, indeed. Uh, so then they get to the outside entrance of where uh, Sinjin Smythe is going to be staying, and we see Jenny Flex. Allison Duty. A.K.A. Dr. Elsa Schneider. Yeah. A.K.A. Allison Duty. <laughs> he's like, hi, I'm Jenny Flex. Well, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how when she walks down the steps, she kind of like leans back and forth. She does this little, <laughs> this little, I don't even know how you how you describe it, like a weeble wobble. That's a dated reference, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Ask your parents, kids. Uh, yes, uh, indeedy. <laughs> so anyway, so she escorts Bond and Tibbet to Bond's quarters. <laughs> with, with possibly the worst... Double entendre bullcrap. Oh my as god! They're about, walking through I love about a morning ride. Or... ride and... Oh my dear, I take it you spend quite a lot of time in the saddle. Yes, I love an early morning ride. Oh, I'm an early riser myself. 
<laughs> I mean, and it was so throwaway. Yeah. Like Roger was like. Well, there's a lot of throwaways like that in here. Every one of the Bond Mots that he throws out just feel like he's like, I'm going to be ridiculous about this every <laughs> single time. If it was a dad joke, he did not lean into that at all. He nope. just delivered it and moved on. Yep. Meanwhile, poor Sir Godfrey is, is behind him holding like five giant bags. <laughs> we get that line from Bond halfway up the steps. Come along, Tibbet. Stop wheezing. <laughs> so, so on the way to the room, they pass Mayday, and she still can't quite place who Bond is just yet. Which like, seems ridiculous. It does seem. But not as ridiculous as when she finally figures it out. Yeah, it's just, it's so weird. It's so out of the, out of nowhere. It's like, oh, well, now this works for the story, so I'm now going to remember who he is. Yes. <laughs> so they get to the room. And uh, Jenny Flex leaves, and they start looking for bugs. All the while, Bond is lambasting Tibbet for everything and anything. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the security guys are back in the security room listening, and they're all having a good chuckle about it. So after they finally find the bug, Bond puts a little tape recorder full of verbal abuse next to the bug so they can go out onto the balcony and actually talk. And it... <laughs> That tape recorder thing. It's like, when did they record all this shit? Exactly. Like, when did they have the time to go, okay, uh, Sir Godfrey, let's let's go into this other room real quick and record like five hours of me just snoring. Snoring. Well, and then also I, I need to record another tape for five hours of me just talking shit to you and making you feel like crap for everything you've done wrong. And, and you apologizing for it. And bear in mind, it's on one of those little micro tape recorders that so, maybe were good for 30 minutes. Maybe. Without flipping them over. Right, exactly. So And <laughs> underneath directly where the microphone is. So anybody listening would know that on a fixed mic, if they're moving around the room, it's going to get quiet. It's going to, yeah, it's going to sound different. back up closer, it's going to get louder. Right. Meanwhile, the guy in the security room, <laughs> I hate to be his valet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at my job. <laughs> Love it. So they go out onto the balcony to talk, and Sir Godfrey is telling him about the case of the missing Pegasus, and and Bond is talking about how he needs to go down to the reception or whatever. And while they're while they're out on the balcony, they see a helicopter fly in, mm -hmm. and Zorin's out there, and he meets with this lovely blonde lady. And that's when Bond says, I forget exactly what he says. Another wealthy owner? Who knows? But she'd certainly bear closer inspection. We're on a mission. Sir Godfrey, on a mission, I am expected to sacrifice myself. <laughs> and like, you can tell he's just trying not to laugh. Right. As he's saying it with such sincerity. Yes. In a close-up, no less. Right. <laughs> and I'll go, I'm going to say right now, that I think the best acting that Tanya Roberts did was this scene where she gets off the helicopter because she clearly conveyed on her face when Zorin kissed yes. her hand her disgust. Yes. And like, are you kidding me kind of look? Well, here's the thing, though. I feel like all of her best acting is when she has sort of a look of disgust on her face. It's true. So she might be one of those people who has like, not to use a sexist term of resting bitch face, but I mean, resting angry face. Let's call it that instead. I think, I think because she I, has... I think, you know, males have resting angry face as well. I, you know, I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think the reason it's more convincing is because she has a naturally not resting bitch face. Yeah. Well, there and you so go. So when you're seeing her normally, 
she seems almost automatically upbeat, charming. Mm-hmm. But when she gets those, like she's afraid or she's angry or she's eye rolling. It's very it, dramatic. It's very dramatic compared to what you normally see as her, there's a default setting. Yes. Fair enough. So fair enough. I don't know. And I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like Christopher Walken was, I need to make her disgusted with me. I <laughs> eat a garlic sandwich. And when I kiss her hand, she's going to be like, oh, that smells. <laughs> That's why it was so good. Because he ate a garlic sandwich. That's right. So Bond makes his way to the most lavish French reception party I have maybe ever seen. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, I, I keep thinking about that budget number, and it just seems so low, given how expensive everything in this movie feels. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of expensive feeling I mean, I don't moments know. in this. So <laughs> even if you take it at today's dollars, an $80 million budget for a movie that really had... No real visual effects that were involved in it. A big chunk of what you were paying was going to Roger. Right. Right. But everybody else that's in that cast is a nobody except for Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. And it'd be interesting to see what his deal was. He's probably like, I'll take points. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Um, so I think, and, you know, who knows? France could have been handing out huge right. incentives to right. go do exactly. stuff there. It could have been major, major. So, I mean, I think you could make that movie now the same way for the same amount of money. Yeah. You just you just got to be efficient. Yeah, and you got to know what you want to do and you got to downplay the crazy I th- stuff. I think I've gotten so used to current Bond movies not being efficient <laughs> with with fair. their budgets. You, yeah, well, you got to take into account a lot of that budget is marketing now. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I all the social you, media and all the I'll everything. bet you a fourth of that budget, not even a fourth of that budget went to marketing. Yeah. Because at that point in time, you could just say James Bond, put Roger Moore's face on a poster, and, and people are going to go see it. Right. So, yeah. So, they're at this very fancy French party, and uh, while trying to uh, spy on Stacy and Zorin uh, as they're heading to the office, Bond is looking through this this full glass door or whatever, and then Mayday comes right up to the other side of the door and is like points at him in the face and is like, get out basically get out of here. Right. So so Bond goes outside and uses the silliest most pol- obvious. Oh, oh, they're so obvious. Those polarizing sunglasses or whatever the hell they do, they're so bad. They're it's my least favorite gadget in all of Bondum. Right, because you can see the tabs. The tabs are so corny. It looks like something that you would send in like five packages of bubblegum to like a novelty store and they send you the, exactly. the, the glasses it's a, it's back. It's a Viewmaster. It, it, I was, that, oh God. It's just, it's just, I can't stand it. It's, it's one of, between that and, and Stacey Sutton herself, those are the two things that just drive me bonkers about this movie not all the other crazy things right. mind you but those two just things. those two things but i like how when bond shows up just when he goes to the window he's talking with the two ladies over there oh god i know and then when he turns away the one girl just kind of goes like oh wow oh i know it's just like that was really a, that a, was... a 57 year old man right. is getting your is getting your motor running and you know john glenn had to walk over and go next time roger walks up to you in this scene you need to act like maybe you think he's kind of hot. And she's like, I'm an extra. I'm not that good an actress. We'll try and sell it. I mean, to be fair, Roger looks great at 57. He absolutely does. But those girls are probably like 23. Yeah, right. And so, but, uh, but some might argue they're paid to be there. Obviously, sure. from Zoran's comments, they're all probably prostitutes. 
<laughs> so I get it. But at the same token, he's not even looking. They don't have to make that kind of eye contact. Right. Get, more like an eye roll. Right. I mean, come on. <laughs> She's talking with this chick. She's like, look at this guy. <laughs> and he was probably hot 20 years ago. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. It's like he's sun- too much tanning, I think. <laughs> his eyes look so wide. <laughs> yeah, why are his eyes so wide? <laughs> anyway, I'm going to get in so much trouble from our tons of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so he uses the, the the silly glasses, and he can magically see through the tinted windows, so he can see Stacy and Zorin's office as he writes her a check. So after they exit the office, Bond sort of doubles back around to the backside doors, getting into this office area or whatever. <laughs> you know, apparently the locks the, they're not locked, and and the actual door into the office was easily pickable because it took him like thirty seconds to get in. It didn't even take thirty seconds. He literally <laughs> stuck the pin and twisted. He was ready to go. I know. <laughs> so then he uses. Another really silly gadget. This one is a little less offensive, but still kind of offensive. Oh that Lord. weird little scanning gadget that... That made the sound of the old credit card receipt yes, reader? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking when I saw it. it. It's just like that. Like every department store in the 80s, when you'd scan your credit... Well, it wasn't even a scan. It was just a... Just a piece was, of plastic it was with a your mechanical, name on it. It was a mechanical device with carbon copy. Yep. <laughs> so that's essentially what it felt like so that he could get a print of whatever had been on that checkbook. So it was like 5 million to S Sutton. So that's that. Then we cut to uh, Bob Conley, who is, boy, you want to talk about like casting an American, like we need to make this movie more American. Get this guy. <laughs> like No doubt. The guy that plays Bob. Hey, I'm Bob Conley. Yeah, I'm a I'm, Texas old man. I'm a Texas old man. Ding, ding, do. Oh, heck, I don't ride horses. <laughs> I, I, I'm an old man. <laughs> so, so he is with Zorin. He's asking about when uh, Main Strike will be. And Zorin states that it's on the 22nd. Which, interestingly enough, I found a little fun fact about that. May 22nd actually became the real-life premiere date of this movie in hmm. San Francisco. So, well, yeah. now I'm making a, ooh. Ooh. Just a walking face. Ooh. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Although it does feel a little out of the blue that they even, like, cut that in there. But I guess they needed to establish that he's in cahoots with Zorin or something. I, I think they're trying to make it. It's a, it's a larger master plan. Yes, yes. So cut back to Bond and he's leaving the office and the horse doctor guy is like right there and he sort of sees that Bond is coming out of Zorin's office like, hey, what are you doing, buddy? FYI, nice monocle. Yeah, yeah. And I love, I love how hard he leans into the monocle throughout the uh-huh. entire movie. There are so many moments where he literally looks as if he can't see or walk unless he's got the monocle in like he literally like oh i can't i can't go any further where's the monocle like oh oh that's better that's oh, so, much better so that's much better this guy's the velma from scooby-doo of this movie right. shaggy where are my glasses max max where's my monocle so so anyway so he finds out that the horse doctor's name is Dr. Carl Mortner, and um, Dr. Mortner helps Bond find the bar. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, that's when he meets Bob Conley, and he's able to take his photo with his handy-dandy ring camera, <laughs> which, I mean, it's the 80s. They didn't have... 
fancy thing. So that was a thing in the eighties was to have a ring camera. Because and I like how you see the, the how you see the aperture open and close on it. Oh, every, I know. It's just and a click and yeah. every, it's like if it was that gaudy and noticeable. It wouldn't be useful. I just think it's funny too, because my 2022 brain kept kicking in and going, okay, so all of this would get done with Bond wearing sunglasses that had a camera on the side of the frame. Mm -hmm. There would be a button in his pocket that had Bluetooth connection to the glasses that could then turn on the polarization so he could see through the thing. There'd be another button on the thing in his pocket that would take the photos... Or he just have it's live stream. Or, or he just live stream it to the cloud the entire time. Right. It's just funny how like. Well, yeah. Nowadays, that same scene would have had some guy in a van. Right. Exactly. Yes. And instant Luther would have instantaneously <laughs> been telling Ethan, Ethan, this guy is an oil baron who works for Zorn. And now, now the big thing is contact lenses. Yes. So you would have, you, we've jumped even past Bluetooth glasses. Right. Now you would have just had two contact lenses that instantaneously polarized. Yes. And we're transmitting images back through them because technology. Technology is ruining everything. It, well, it's certainly ruining spy movies. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what do we even need people for? <laughs> so Zorn walks up and... Uh, hello. Hello. Because he sees Mr. Sinjin Smythe talking with Bob Conley. And so he goes over there, and and uh, we get the the classic Bond versus villain initial chat where where they both establish that they are not on the same side of this right. But you situation. Again, how nuanced is this little performance that Walken gives? Yes, he's so downplayed and subtle with everything. Yeah. The rest of I mean, you know, he's the so maniacal in other areas, right? That but here he's just like Mrs. Singed Smythe. I'm, I'm, this is my public face. I'm very chill. <laughs> yeah. Have you been in horses long? I love a good ride. <laughs> I, and it's just, I'm so used to seeing Christopher Walken in the latter half of his career. Right. When he's just he's over just, the top, he's he's got it turned to 11 the all whole the time. time. Yeah. And when I see a subtle performance like this one, it makes me remember, this guy used to be an Academy Award winning actor who was in some seriously good pieces of art from right. the 70s. Right. I'm just like, nobody else could have sold this ridiculous movie, but someone who committed to the level he was committing Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's so good in I the just whole wish, thing. I just wish that Roger but had he, committed that level well, to this, because that this movie would have been so much better now I will if say, Roger hadn't just phoned it in. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. I, but what I, I will say, what I will say is Christopher Walken forces Roger Moore in every scene that they're in together forces Roger to up his game because yes. Roger's very good in this particular uh, I agree. in this particular conversation where he's like, so uh do you do any fishing? Fly casting. Right. And he and And he, then Zorn just kind of goes, I see where you're going with this. But I'm not going to engage. Fuck you. <laughs> First of all, fuck you. Second, Second of all, <laughs> no, I hate fishing. <laughs> so, I get wet. <laughs> From there he quickly Ends the conversation and heads off, not quite in a huff, but you can tell he's very annoyed. Yeah, he's very like, I'm neglecting my other guests. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy the company, Mr. Bond. You find them very willing? I don't know. <laughs> the prostitutes. <laughs> so Bond then quickly grabs a bottle of champagne and two glasses and goes, finds uh, Stacy Sutton, who is conveniently over on a bridge all by herself. And oh, bye. 
<laughs> and she's just sort of ponderously looking out yeah, over the water. Vapidly looking over the water. <laughs> so then he comes over, he's like, Hello, my name is Smythe, James St. John Smythe. And, and then he goes, I'm English. <laughs> She's like, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand that line. I'm English. Well, yeah. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> yeah, you are the epitome of sounding like you're English. I wouldn't even have to hear a word out of that man and be like, that, that guy's guy, English. That guy's British for sure. <laughs> Like, I don't need to hear a word out of him. So, so anyway, uh, he tries to find out who she is, where she's from, anything. Uh, the only thing he can really surmise is that she's from the States, uh, which is also obvious of her. She's also right. painfully American. But then he sees Zoran with Mayday looking at, looking at Bond talking to Stacy. He's like, Mayday. Get her away from him. I literally laughed out loud when he when he delivered that line. He's just like, get away from her. <laughs> so anyway, so Mayday comes in and intervenes, and uh, he can't even use his little ring. Right, he keeps but, trying to go around holding the, the she champagne like, glass. She like photobombs him just as he's right? trying to take her picture. And, <laughs> and, and then he does that whole flirting thing like, oh, I was expecting us to go for dinner for tonight in the evening and hang out right. and blah, 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 blah. And, well, and then he, you know, Mayday's like, someone will take care of you. And he's like, oh, is it a promise? Uh, yeah, I know. He's just like, he's willing to like sleep with anyone who's nearby. Like the, the fact that he like starts with one girl and the other girl still with, still with an earshot. And he's like, well, how about you? <laughs> it's like, I've got to do something. <laughs> I've got to do something. I mean, I'm not hanging out with Tibbet, that's for sure. <laughs> So Mayday takes her to the to the chopper. <laughs> <laughs> and so then we cut to nighttime and uh, we're at the horse stables and we see uh, Dr. Mortner leaving the stable and Sir Godfrey is back in sneaky, sneaky mode and he's off to find out more about the disappearance of Pegasus. And as he's sort of looking around, like Bond kind of sneaks up on him, which is weird. But I, I mean, I guess it makes sense since they're in different quarters or whatever. Yeah. They just sort of had the same idea or whatever. But it is funny, that tracksuit that, right? that Bond is wearing. Oh, oh, boy. I mean, it's the 80s. Oh, yeah, I don't no, know. no, it's definitely fitting for the time yeah. period. But it seems ridiculous on Roger Moore. It, yeah. He is not a tracksuit wearer. Well, here's the thing. In 2022, he just looks like one of those senior citizens who has like right? 15 tracksuits and that's all they wear. And wearing, those, <laughs> wearing those New Balance walking shoes. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Anyway, the 80s. The 80s. So then we see the one stunt that I can absolutely verify that Roger Moore does, which is not much of a stunt, but just where he hits the button that makes the stable sink down and then he kind of quickly moves around the hand rest or whatever and jumps down onto the platform mm -hmm. before it sinks all the way down. That is definitely actually That's him. absolutely 100% Roger Moore. It's like the one stunt I can 100% verify that, that he did. That was the one in his contract. <laughs> he couldn't his even, one contractual obligation. He couldn't even drive half a car because that was so dangerous. They had to use Huey Lewis hair. And then as Huey Lewis hair is trying to get out of the car, they did the hard cut to show Roger getting out of the car. There's another egregious stuntman thing, but it's not Roger. 
that comes up later. Patrick McNeese? It, no. Although it, I think Patrick McNee did more of that fight scene. No, it's Gagol's. What? Gagol has a stunt double in this. I shit you oh, not. Oh, I can't wait to hear about this. Yes. I didn't see that. So they're in that stable that sinks down, the elevator stable, <laughs> that sinks down into the medical lab. And there we see poor Pegasus all alone. I felt kind of bad for it the did, horse. It's very sad for the horse. Because it was all dark and he's all by himself in this med lab. And anyway. All by himself. <laughs> We're going to need a counter for how many times you have to sing that during this. That's twice. <laughs> don't don't want to sing all by myself. So Sir Godfrey goes over to uh, kind of investigate the horse and kind of show him some attention. I kind of like every time Sir Godfrey is doing sneaky stuff around the stables, he's petting the horses. Mm-hmm. He's like being really nice to the horses. It made me like his character more. Well, it makes you think probably that Patrick McNee has some affinity, comfort, affinity yes. for horses. Yes. So it's just probably something that's been, he's done for years and years and right. years and years. And it's so just, he can't just treat them as set dressing. Right. And it, it just, I don't know. It just made me feel good. It did. Sir Godfrey is clearly a good guy, but we all know what happens to good people in these movies. No doubt. Uh, so then we quick cut to the security guys that are checking in on Bond in his room. And then we get the tape recorder once again, but this time with five hours of snoring on it, Mm -hmm. which is just like, oh, he's sleeping like a baby. And it's just like the most like cornball, like canned, you know, stock. I don't know. I feel like I hope that was Roger Moore that and did some ADR. I, I and feel fake like snoring. You know, I feel like Roger Moore would really get into it. Like uh-huh. I feel like he would fancy that because it would make him chuckle to have to do it. Yes. He'd like, oh wait, let me do this. I want to do it. Is it nasally enough? <laughs> <laughs> I really want to lean into this. <laughs> So anyway, uh, so Sir Godfrey discovers that Pegasus has had surgery recently. And then meanwhile, Bond, again, the expert, uh, cracks the combination lock. With a stethoscope. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. Excellent. Um, so so he opens the combination lock on the lab fridge. And he sort of de- he basically determines that they implanted a microchip in Pegasus that can release a steroid by way of some sort of remote trigger in the jockey's whip, like mid-race when the horse is becoming fatigued or whatever. But this is sort of one of those moments of pseudoscience that's sort of like, do we really need a microchip in there to do all this? All you need, it's a radio frequency transmitter. Right. Do you Why really, do you need a microchip? Right. I think they're confusing microchips and transistors. Yeah. And... I wonder if that's some like 1985, like not quite sure what we're actually talking about just yet. Because I mean, the level of technology in this movie, we're seeing 8-bit computer screens. We're seeing Stacey Sutton on the, quite possibly the earliest incarnation of a Mac Oh my gosh. I don't think it was, that was an Apple or an Apple II. It wasn't even a Mac. Right. It was like an Apple. It was pre-Mac. Right. So that was just past Apple IIe. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So... So I think I think that's part of it. But anyway, at this point, Bond and, and Sir Godfrey they start hearing Zorn's men coming, and they hide out. They turn, they hit the lights. But of course, Bond puts back the test tube uh, in the wrong place on that little centrifuge thing. So of course, you know, they make a very a very obvious note of showing that. So clearly, right. that's going to come back to haunt him. You would think, why would 007 make that mistake? He would never make that mistake. I know. So it's it's, silly. it's just, well, it's just a plot device i know maybe it could have been crooked but i feel like bob would have put it in the right my my problem with with it actually is if it is a plot device it's not even necessary for them to discover that he put it in the wrong place like there's nothing going forward 
that truly pays off them discovering that it is, you know what I mean? Right, like, because in the next scene, they're gonna he's gonna figure out exactly who he is. Right. It's just to increase Zorin's suspicion. Yeah. But why? Because Mayday's about to go, aha. So the Zorin's goons come looking for them, and Bond and Sir Godfrey, they wind up in Zorin's warehouse, where they discover that Zorin is basically hoarding microchips. Despite, at that time, quite a different world today, but at that time, there was a world surplus of microchips. (laughs) Oh, the 80s. (laughs) Must be nice to have a surplus of microchips. Just saying. So anyway, in there, that's where they end up fighting the goons. Not a great fight scene. (laughs) First of all, they look like Burgermeisters from Germany with those hats <laughs> with the little feathers in them. It's it's pretty Batman-y. It's pretty it, like it's 60... It's very. If the camera had been canted all about they, 20 degrees... Yep, all they needed to do was hit a Dutch angle on the camera and you'd have <laughs> 60s Batman in this in this fight. Especially considering the fact that they literally pack them in Zoran yeah. packages. And then the bad, you know, the bad Bond mod at the end. I'm afraid that wasn't much help. Don't worry. It's all wrapped up. It's just... uh. (laughs) Well, I got to tell you, having worked with that equipment in my life, those guys would have gotten seriously injured on that banding machine. Right. Especially if it banded his head. They would have been pretty close to perished. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I don't think it could have broken a human skull. Right. But I don't feel like it would have just been like, oh, he's running through the rollies and now he's done. No. Right. No, it would have been a lot more painful. It would have been a lot more painful than that. Yeah. So then we cut to Mayday giving Zorin a karate lesson. <laughs> and <laughs> because why wouldn't you? I, lo- I love the focus on her hands. Yeah. She's all, I'm doing karate. <laughs> this is, well, again, it's all very Jean Claude Van Damme. It's all very karate kid. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is very 80s karate. Like back when people really, especially Americans, didn't know what the fuck karate really right. was. <laughs> so, so anyway, Mayday's giving Zoran this karate lesson and kind of schooling him a little bit, which is kind of fun. And then, and then of course, though, Zoran kind of tries to turn the tables and gets fresh with her in this very aggressive, yeah. but kind of seems to match Mayday's aggression yeah. level. It borderline on Goldfinger cringy. We are sort of, yeah, we're starting to infringe on... But you got the impression... Later on in the movie, you get the definite impression that it was... She wanted that to happen. It was consensual. But the way she's asking or acting with the biting and the struggling... it's, It's very difficult as us being us, me and you. Yes, to to determine whether or not his advances are consensual, <laughs> we'd probably yes. need a third uh, voice, <laughs> preferably a female, you know, yeah. to probably interject and tell us what they thought of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah. alternately, he also could have been eating a garlic sandwich, and she was just like, <laughs> I love was... the taste of garlic. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they're interrupted by the news that uh, Zorin's goons are being stuck in shipping crates. I told you I didn't want to be interrupted. <laughs> Why are you calling? On my... Every line. Every line is so good yes. of his. Every line. It's just, he tries out a new inflection on <laughs> everything. Why did you call? <laughs> Anyway, so Bond has to try and hurry back to his room at this point because he knows they've probably figured it out. And then uh, nobody cares about what Sir Godfrey does, really. So (laughs) so Bond hurries back. But instead, when he gets there, he realizes somebody's in his room already. So he gets into Mayday's bed 
just because he's like, aha, I was putting the moves on her earlier. earlier yeah. so, so he jumps into Mayday's bed. And, uh, and of course, conveniently, it's right then and there that Mayday suddenly, I remember who he is. I, weren't you at the Eiffel Tower a few days ago? Just, her whole thing was like something out of a bad improv group, you know? <laughs> Aha! I remember now! <laughs> so, she suddenly remembers who he is, and then she goes back to her room because she's going to get dressed to go find him, but then, of course, he's there. Yeah, because for some reason, she took off all of her clothes in the karate room <laughs> and threw on a robe before they went on their whatever they were going to go because do. Because that's what you do, apparently. I, I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's This is the karate way. It is the karate way. <laughs> I'm all sweaty, but I'm still in my gi. Why are you going to take that off? <laughs> I mean, I don't mind the view, but... <laughs> to a kill. Why? <laughs> no, we're not even there yet. I think it's kind of funny, too, how Zorin is just sort of amused by it. Like, okay, go. <laughs> Shag him. I don't care. He's like, oh, man, maybe you kill him while you're doing it. I don't even know. All right. So she goes in, and there's a weird... Not to really dwell on the whole love scene, although it is funny, because you can tell he's legitimately scared like yes. not bond i'm talking roger, roger moore, moore is yes. legitimately scared of this woman <laughs> his <laughs> eyes got even wider if that's a thing that could have happened in this movie so, so but there's also this weird jump cut as she's getting into bed like like maybe it took too long during when they actually shot it or something yeah well i think it had more to do with her not showing her naked oh because he had the blanket up very high for her to slide in. Right. So maybe it was like something, maybe in her contract, she didn't want to show certain things Which or, seems or, weird or to it me could have it just been like a mistake. She wouldn't have cared. I mean, she, she did, she's peeling cared. everything off. She's in Grace the Jones. Thing. She wouldn't have cared. So but it could have been an MPAA. Thing. That's what I was thinking. I was wondering if maybe it was a rating thing. Right. Because this is a, th- a PG, not a PG 13, if I right. recall. So do they even still- have PG 13 yet in 85? I don't know if it's 84 or 86. Oh. But either way, there wasn't any other nudity in it. No. Unless you count Pola and her very tight and wet tank top later, which was <sighs> pretty darn close. But I, you know, it, it's Enjoy weird. It's moment. very noticeable. Yes. It's very noticeable that, yeah. that there was just like, oh, we don't want to show her getting into the bed with Bond. Right. It's, it's interesting. It's weird. It's a weird choice. But anyway, maybe someone will get in touch with us. Yeah, let here us at the know CSC. if you know. And let us know if you know. Remember, we're an intelligence gathering agency. That's right. We don't actually project intelligence. <laughs> so they sleep together. <laughs> and uh, this is when we uh, cut again. There's Here's this cut where we see Zorin, Dr. Mortner, and Scarpine in the horse lab noticing that the test tube has been in the wrong place. Oh, that's what it is. That whole cut right there is all a vehicle to just for Zorin to say, I want to see Bond first thing tomorrow morning. Right. That's, that's all the, it is. That's all it's there for, which is so silly. They could avoid that whole they thing. They could have. Well, yeah, exactly. By just having uh, a scene with Walken going to Scarpine and saying, bring Mr. Sinjin Smith to my office tomorrow. Right. That's all you needed. <laughs> right. It's just weird that they created a whole plot device around it. <laughs> right. In fact, you know, with my lack of editing, editing brain, I'd have been like Grace Jones walking in, peeling off. You cut to Soren walking over going, I want to see him. And then you cut back to her sliding into bed and you finish that scene. There you go. Done. Get rid of the jump cut. Look at that. I could be an editor. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't, Jason. <laughs> so cut to the next morning and... Uh, 
You slept well? A little restless, but I got off eventually. <laughs> so Bond is called into Zorn's office under the guise of preparing sale info for Mr. Sinjin Smythe. <laughs> But using his handy-dandy 8-bit graphics-enabled computer oh, and a, a non-digital camera. No doubt. Uh, How did he get a digital image projected into that computer? Which is, uh, I know you could do it, but yeah, God, it was so. It's so funny to think about how even back then, computers, what computers could do, right. Or not what they can do in the movies. Right. They can always do more in the movies than they can right. actually do in reality. Right. You cannot hook up an analog camera to a computer and expect a, a an image to come no, through. No. That's not how that works. No, 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 no. And I mean, you know, <laughs> even that, I mean, computer, personal computers were still a mystery to people back then. Yes. But I mean, calculators have more brain power these days than that computer would ever have had. Right. And just the whole thing, you know. So, I love computers. They're very important. Very useful. Very useful. I think they're going to be big. <laughs> so using his super high-tech 8-bit computer, he finds out that he's James Bond and licensed to kill and yada, yada, yada. Do you think he was on like some sort of like ancient internet chat room that was like, you know, that nefarious people use to compare agents and stuff? Yeah, where they like... Because it looked like he was like... Where you literally have to use a modem to call another computer. <laughs> not the internet, mind you, another computer. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It was like the, you know, the, the beginning of the internet when it was just a school thing. Ah, okay, But okay. it's like only for evil supervillains. Right, you know, it's right. Like, I, I have a query. Who's this guy? <laughs> and then the evil internet thing comes back and goes, oh, it's James Bond. Ooh. Oh, ha. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I love all the all the faces that he makes <laughs> as he's discovering this information about <laughs> the gifts that have wow. been. Wow. The gifts that are online <laughs> of that scene. <laughs> It's wonderful. Um, at this point, you know, Zorin gets a little idea in his head. You know, come with me on my morning ride. Show you the horse. Show you the horse. Inferno. So, <laughs> so you know, Bond is, uh, I'll go get my riding gear on because I have five bags full of shit. Exactly. So, <laughs> so you cut to Bond telling Sir Godfrey to go into town to trace the check that he printed off during the reception. And that's when we get that whole thing of, well, what, what do I tell the gods if, if they ask me where I'm going? And tell them you're getting the car washed. And he'd, he'd already just finished washing the, the car. He throws so, the muddy water. Off he goes. On the goes. Yeah. So then Tibbet arrives at the exit gate where Mayday is standing. Now, this is one of those things where it's just like, come on, Sir Godfrey is a seasoned agent, much like Roger Moore in this book. <laughs> maybe less cast iron, maybe more fine wine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he would have noticed this happening, but, you know. So he has to go open the gate himself because Mayday is being Mayday. Mm -hmm. And so as he's, of course, opening the gate, that's when Mayday sneaks into the back of the car. Spoiler. So <laughs> anyway, so then he heads into town. Then we cut to this, this horse ride. And they're they're saddling up and everything, and naturally Bond is given a horse named Inferno, Inferno. to ride, and he can our Bond can already smell the danger about to happen. And so, meanwhile, we see Sir Godfrey get murdered in the car wash while Jenny Flex sort of looks on. Now, I will this actually remind like I've always had a thing with those car washes, the drive-through car mm -hmm. washes. Like when I was a kid, I was obsessed with them. 
And this really messed with me when I saw it as a kid, like seeing this murder in there. Cause, yeah. cause it was so just made me think about what it was like every time I went through the car wash with my mom. But like, this one was weird. It was an outside car wash. Right. It wasn't even covered. It was no, just. No, it was just brushes. Yeah. <laughs> I think the moral of the story is don't drive your rolls through an outdoor car wash. Through, who, a, through a drive-through car right. wash. Who drives a Rolls Royce? Into a drive-through car wash. No one does. Nobody, Nobody does. Nobody does that. <laughs> so anyway, so we cut back to the start of a steeplechase that Bond apparently has no choice but to try and attempt. Zorin tells him that he can have the horse if he's able to stay on course and not be thrown. He's like, well, I guess I have no other choice but to do this, Which, this, by the way, this death trap of he, a race. By the way, he technically won the horse. Oh, he did. He absolutely he did. He didn't get thrown. No, and he beat Zorin in the end. That's right. <laughs> technically, he should have had that horse. Damn, Skippy. So they start the the race. Well, actually, before even the start of the race, there's all these like hooligans on right. horses <laughs> that sort of saddle up next to him at the starting block. And it's just like they've all got like bruises and they all look like they've broken their nose like three times. Right. And, you know. It's also more realistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get the feeling for it. <laughs> so they start the race and... You know, immediately, the first thing we see is the first barrier. We get Zorin hitting the button. or He, he indicates to the henchman that's controlling the, the first obstacle to do whatever it is to make it more obstacle-y. Right. And that's when we get our next... Oh! <laughs> I love it. Oh! I love it so much. Instead of, instead of a Wilhelm scream, is that a Sinjin Smythe scream? <laughs> it might be a Sinjin... <laughs> No, because it's a it's definitely a Bond Wilhelm scream because they even use it when he's hanging from the moor rope on the blimp. That's true. So he makes the same noise. So it's technically not a Sinjin Smythe Wilhelm scream. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, then uh, the next thing that happens is he like hits a button and it extends the pond jump, and so he's got to try and jump further to get over the pond right. or whatever. And then he, and then the next time he raises this one bar, so he has to kind of jump in between over the, the hurdle thing, and but keep his head under the other bar, which he manages to do. And then at that point, Bond then catches Zorin and passes him, but that's when Zorin hits the button on the whip, which sort of sends Inferno into a frenzy. But Bond still manages to kind of. Yeah. Keep him under control, and that's when he decides to make a break for it. Well, I don't even think he decided to make a break for or it. Or was I think it Inferno? The horse just decided he was going to jump That was over Inferno's choice at that that's point. How I was, that's how I felt. That was my interpretation uh. of the scene. However, you can interpret it however you like because really, movies are art. I feel and like <laughs> art is open to the interpretation of those who view it. I feel like it's a bit open-ended one way or the other. It, it, it I could be agreeable to either option, it, actually. It gets us to the same ending. It gets us to the same ending. So At that point, Bond is going through the woods, and he sees Sir Godfrey's car driving, and he catches up, and he starts to try and get into the car, and then he suddenly realizes Mayday's driving it and puts him at gunpoint, so they all stop. And Bond quickly goes into the back seat and realizes that Sir Godfrey is dead and he's right. trying to like tend to him, but you know, he's dead. So he's dead. <laughs> so <laughs> Zorn arrives quickly thereafter. Some great lines in this particular moment between Bond and Zorn, though. Yes. You made a huge mistake doing that. I'm about to make the same mistake again. That is good writing, actually. Right. I do like that line a lot. For his character, it's it's sort of like I don't care. 
Right. He, that's the one nice thing about his character, too, is he's so consistent through the whole thing. Even if he makes mistakes or does huge glaring things that would get him noticed by somebody as he's in the act of doing them, mm-hmm. he just doesn't care. He doesn't. Because he's such a psychopath that he literally just, just doesn't care. Psychopath, how- sociopath. If, he's a, if there's a path, he's on it. <laughs> Indeed. And it is, that follows up with the very best line in this entire movie. You amuse me, Mr. Bond. Well, it's not mutual. <laughs> He's just so joyful about how amused he is. <laughs> so at that point, Bond is knocked out and uh, put in the backseat with uh, Dead Tibbet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Dead Tibbet. Hashtag Dead Tibbet. And then uh, they roll the car, uh, Zorn and Mayday rather, roll the car into a nearby lake. Which is just sad. It's yeah. it's sad. It's sad. It's a lovely Why automobile. Why would you do it? <laughs> then uh, Bond wakes up as the car is already underwater, but there's just a little bit of oxygen left inside the cab. And he finds his way out of the car and realizes that Zorin and and Mayday are looking on, but the way that it's shot, it's a little dubious because if you're looking at the shot, the POV from Zorin's point of view, that car is out there a ways. Yes. But if you're looking up out of the water as if you're falling, it looks like they're right above him. Like they're on the edge of a pool, maybe? Right. I don't know. Well, Almost see, like they when, shot it in a pool. When light goes through water, it reflects differently from when you're looking inside you the water. Too, it magnifies so, so what you're it seeing, makes it seem... Exactly. It's so <laughs> what you're seeing is the light reflected at certain angles, and it appears closer than it actually is, much like a convex mirror in your car, where the objects are closer than they appear. <laughs> Or something like that. Sure. Hey, it's as good as the science in the rest of this movie. <laughs> exactly. So then, speaking of science, then Bond is able to successfully breathe water, or breathe, breathe water, breathe air. <laughs> oh, boy. And this this works. <laughs> Does it actually it work? It actually works. Okay. The hardest thing, okay, so inside a valve stem, uh-huh. inside there's a little plunger piece, and that's like when you put the, the air gauge in it, there's mm-hmm. a little metal thing. That's the only job is to push this metal piece in mm-hmm. so that air can go in and out. It goes both ways. Right. Right? So um, if you ever want to let the... <laughs> <clears throat> if you ever want to let the air out of somebody's <laughs> tires, you get something that's called a tire core remover or a stem core remover. You take it in, you unscrew it, you pull it out, all the air comes out, no damage to the tire. You didn't hear from me, folks. Nope. But That's you, confidential. You can push those things Top in. Secret. Top secret. Anyway, um, you can actually push those things in and air will come out like right. that, but not with your fingernail because they're recessed in this thing ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. You'd have to have a very pointy nail. Very pointy right. Nail. You can do it with a bicycle tire, but not with a car tire, probably. You, yeah, it would be difficult with a, bi- a bicycle tire, too. You could still do it, but mm-hmm. the fingernail was a little unbelievable because he was once you got it in there, I don't know, it's like he kept taking it off and then putting it back on and that would have been real tough underwater while you're trying not to die. But right. We are talking about James Bond. We are talking about James Bond. I'll let this one slide. Uh, so he breathes underwater. Myth not busted. This one, this one would pass the Mythbuster test. Yes, yes, indeed. So he breathes air from the tires and waits for Zorin and Mayday to leave. Yeah. Oh, that's got to be yucky rubber air. Oh, yucky too. rubber <laughs> air, man. Ugh. Anyway. Well, they walk off. Then they walk off, and then, and then we cut to the next uh, scene, and that's when we are at the uh, back at a at the racetrack. I don't know if this is uh, the same racetrack or a different one. I think it's his racetrack. Okay, so Gogol shows up with his men, with KGB men, including 
including Dolph, Dol- Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren. And Hello. Is that his very first appearance on screen? It might be. I think it might be because Rocky Six was the following year. Or Rocky, or Rocky four. Three. Four? Yeah, it's Five. four. It's How four. many Rockies? There's six, but he's in four. It's, it's four. He's Sorry. in four. <laughs> Why do they go to six? Wow. So anyway, Dolph Lundgren's in it. Dolph Hi. Lundgren's in it. Hi, Dolph. Hi, Dolph. He doesn't have much to do, but he's there. He looks pretty styling in his blue 80s suit. He does. He does. That also looks very not bourgeoisie or, you know, even yeah. remotely capitalist in any way. <laughs> no, not at all. So everybody's mad in this conversation. It's an angry conversation. It's a very angry conversation. Gogol's mad at Zorin. Zorin's mad at Gogol. Gogol's mad because Zorin, quote unquote, killed Bond, which, how did he know that? Did he? Did Zorin tell him? KGB. They know everything. Uh, okay. And he's mad because he didn't get, not that he killed Bond, but that he didn't get permission. He didn't get permission to, to kill, kill him. Bond. And he's mad that he didn't check in. And then <laughs> we get that that funny line where Gogol says killing Bond could have reprisals that jeopardize his operations. And then Zorn snaps back, you jeopardize mine. I jeopardize mine. <laughs> so, I know. He's just like, wow. <laughs> he's such a bratty kid in this moment. Yeah, like, absolutely. It, but it so fits what it, where it, it fits he's character. Bas- he's, he's basically being dressed down by dad. Right. So it, it fits perfectly. But dad's screwing up his plans to go, you know, rule the world. <laughs> right, exactly. I no longer consider myself to be a KGB agent. And then we hear from the random KGB agent that's with Gogol. Yeah, he's about to get uh, Cuisinarded <laughs> 20 minutes into the film, but yeah. <laughs> right. So then he's like, what would you be without us? You'd just be a biological experiment, a, phys- the, a physiological freak. But he laughs at the biological experiment. Then when he calls him a freak, he's like, oh no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pushing it overboard. Yeah, Here's so- my people with guns. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of hints at who is Zorin. It sort of gets the the audience sort of thinking like, wait, why is he calling him a physiological freak right. and a biological experiment? Right. What do we not know about this guy just yet? Right. So that that actually works for me. Again, there were so many things that would have made this movie better because mm-hmm. I think at its base, there was enough there for a better movie. But I think we just... We ran too long. Ran too long. They just cut. They they could have cut out like a, a solid forty minutes out of this movie, mm-hmm. and you could have had a really tight hour and a half that like sung. Yeah, absolutely. So, but we'll talk about that more. Yeah. I'm sure. At this point, Zorin gets super pissed, and Mayday understands that, so she lifts the guy up, Cuisinart, over her head, right? <laughs> like, like just like, like it's nothing, right. and then illustrating that oh, she's super strong. Maybe Max is super strong, right? Right. You know, it's demonstrating what's been going on with Monocle Man's uh, right experiments, whole program. right? And then Gogol sort of says, "Stop it!" You know, it's almost like saying, "Vader, release him," yeah, right. <laughs> as you wish. He goes falling out of the ground. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, Gogol leaves, and that's basically when we kind of get into the second act of this. Film, although it feels like there's about six acts, but well, you know, it actually feels like there's two acts because there's two movies, so I guess technically there would be six acts, yeah, because each <laughs> act would have its own right three acts. Wow, that's a lot of acts, a lot of acts, so little acting in any of those acts, but uh, <laughs> no, anyway. So we move on a very, very hard cut from Zorin being mad at the KGB at his racetrack to a board meeting, the hardest where he's of cuts. super happy, yeah, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> We've done a wonderful job with all of the microchips 
FYI, spoiler alert, you're going to get a lot of walking in this section. <laughs> and when I say walking, I don't mean with my feet. <laughs> anyway, so we get to Zorn. He's talking to all of his business associates who are settled around a gigantic table I'll, uh, maybe I'm Spectre, maybe I'm not Spectre. We're not, I'm not Spectre, come on. Um, <laughs> but he's talking about how everybody in there is into microchips, how he's made all of them wealthy with his right. technology that he's appropriated. Right, by giving all his business associates info- inside information. Inside information that they could act upon so they can make, you know, the right choices to make more money. Also, he he uh, gives a an incorrect fact about how microchips are made. He's talking about sand. right. It's like, Silicon, which is sand. It's like, no, no, that's... Well, it's in sand, it's but in sand, sand isn't it. Yeah, it's a yeah, little incorrect. But, anyway. But you know what? Hey, 85. 85. You can identify double uh, O agents through an 8-bit computer. That's right. Who cares about science? I'm just going to, every time I, I get to another one of these moments, I'm just going to say 85. I think that's it. That's our keyword. Oh, 85. 85. Okay. okay. So from there, he launches into his master plan uh, very dramatically by throwing a bunch of expensive microchips onto a table where I don't know how they timed that, but they timed that really well because none of those chips actually fell off the table as the secret layer uh, evil plot map thing comes rising (laughs) up through the table. Um, A la Ken Adam. Yeah, no kidding. I'm like... is this on sale from Goldfinger's place? <laughs> right. Because this thing's amazing. <laughs> There's blinky red lights and it's blinky green lights. It's like an updated it's version 2.0 of, of Goldfinger's. Uh... It totally is. <laughs> it's the ultimate Bond villain map. It tells you exactly what the hell's happening without saying anything. And I will. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he starts to go talking about how he has to destroy Silicon Valley because they make so many of the microchips that they're their only real competition. And once they get rid of Silicon Valley, then they'll have all the surplus of Zorin microchips and they'll literally corner the microchip market. And then cue the ridiculous James Bond villain plot for destroying Silicon Valley. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. And, I, you know, he doesn't really go into detail on how he's going to do it. We, no. we find that out through pseudoscience later. Really, this is just an introduction to the people that he works with, is saying, so what you're going to do is pay me $100 million, and I'm going to cut you in. One right? million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's it's ridiculous, the whole thing. But you, all these people are like, yeah, yeah, they're not. And like, we, we could do this, except for yeah, the sure. one guy who's like, you want us to be to give you $100 million? The guy from Taiwan is the only guy with any sort of scruples or morals. I didn't even think of or... scruples. He left because he wasn't going to pay him $100 million. Right. And like, this is ridiculous. I'll have nothing to do with it. And he's like, okay, well, fine. Mayday will show you out. He'll Get you a drink. Get you a drink, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that, that actually is a very little subtle scene that I think Grace Jones pulls off very well. Yes. And she squirts him agree. out. Very subtly removes all of the the notes and everything that he had, right. so it doesn't go with him. Mm-hmm. And then shows him to where the bar is, and it turns out that the bar is a bunch of stairs that turn flat. An opening comes up; they're clearly in the air. Down goes the guy from Taiwan, the second worst flying dummy in the movie. <laughs> as we find out that we're on Zorin's blimp. Blimp. Oh, blimp. Zorn has a blimp. And let me tell you, this blimp is pretty amazing. It's like a transformer. <laughs> it's like an aeroplane. It's it's the it's, things it does. It's quite the blimp. It's, it is quite the blimp. Goodyear ain't got nothing on a Zorn blimp. 85. 85, baby. <laughs> That's all we got to say. <laughs> Out he goes. No ticket. <laughs> and, and then you get the you get the villain Bon Mott 
So, does anybody else want to drop out? <laughs> I actually kind of love it because he delivers it so well. He does. And he does it in the way that Roger's delivering every line that he delivers with a Bon Mott in this movie. Right. But he puts enough walking into it that you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> all right, I'm going to give you that one. I'll allow it. <laughs> I'll allow it. But then you get another hard cut from there to Bond going to San Francisco. Well, you know- actually, before that, we get the worst line in the entire movie, which is... Oh, that's right. They show uh, Mayday and Zorin looking out the window and they in looking the at the view area, of, yeah. of, of the San Francisco Bay Area. And Grace Jones, wow. What a view. <laughs> and and walking pops in to a kill. And it's just it's not even out loud, it's to a kill. Coming to theaters yeah. on the 22nd. Go see it. <laughs> It'll be great. <laughs> so then we cut to uh Bond down, I'm assuming at Fisherman's Wharf. Yeah. It's a wharf of some kind. It's not wharf from Star Trek, I can tell you that. <laughs> but probably Fisherman's Wharf, where he goes to and orders a... Uh, uh, what is soft shell soft crab. crabs. That's right. Soft shell crab. And the guy's like, oh, I think we might have some of that. Uh, let me go check in the back. I'll be right back. And as he's walking off, I want to point out to everybody, it's Tarantino's crab shack. It says it right there on the back. I don't know if there's any relation, but uh, interesting. it would be interesting. Do we know if Quentin added to crab shack? I don't know. But anyway. Speaking of fables, real quick, let me interject. Now, some of our tens of listeners may know this already. So there's a little urban legend in this scene that supposedly, well, actually, this is confirmed. It is confirmed that when they were shooting this scene down on the wharf, that Maude Adams just happened to be in that area while they were shooting and John Glenn invited her down and if she wanted to be an extra during the scene, she could be an extra in the scene somewhere. Okay. This scene has been dissected over and over again trying to find Maude. It's like it's like the Where's Waldo of Bond okay. moments where they're trying to find Maude Adams. You know, I watched prominent Bond YouTuber uh, Calvin Dyson did a whole eight minute long video on this and I did my own little watch down of it I don't think she's there. Hmm. I do not think she's there. Like, they've narrowed it down to, like, two different people. I actually didn't think it was either one of the people that they pointed out. There's another woman whose back is entirely to the camera the entire time, and she passes right in front of frame and then leaves frame. She's the only one I'd be even remotely convinced is her. So so how did this all come to be, then, if she's not clearly on screen? There was a, like, a making-of documentary Okay. And they even interview Maude Adams, and she's like, I'm the only uh, woman who's been a Bond girl three times in in the James Bond franchise Mm. and all this stuff. And she's like, if you can find me. She's like, I don't know. And she gives, she has given over the years different answers regarding all this. And John Glenn is also on camera saying that almost more convincingly sounding like, oh yeah, she's in it. But like people have scoured that scene over and over again. Even in the wides, like no one's ever like confirmed. And is this like the James Bond version of Paul McCartney dying? I mean, I mean, it kind of, it's, well, I mean, it's, it's this. And then it's also uh, the girl who becomes Jaws's girlfriend in Moonraker, where there's a whole group of people online who think that she was wearing braces during it. And she's not. 
And then there are people that are so convinced that she was wearing braces that they, oh, they must have digitally took them out in later versions of the movie, which is total horseshit as well. I remember her wearing braces. She does not wear braces. She smiles at him because Jaws smiles at her. Right. She does not. No. I contend that that is not the case. All right, From well, I remember seeing it, I remember clearly she had braces. Calvin's done a video on that one as well. <laughs> I was, and I trust Calvin Dyson. With I was I was married to a woman who had braces when we were dating, so it kind of sticks in my head a little bit. Go back and check. You know, we can have a whole Intel report. Here's what on I'm going to tell you right now: I am never going to go back to find Mod Adams in this movie because I'm never going to watch this movie again. I'm probably going to feel the same way about Moonraker when we watch it. So you better remind me when we watch it because if I don't see it the two times I watch it for this All show, right. probably never going to watch it again. Okay. So I'm just saying. Fair enough. If you want me to, if you want, I will get involved with the conspiracy. But <laughs> you got to remind me there's a conspiracy to get involved with. Okay. But we digress. It's not like we're talking about the trained monkey playing Yoda here. This is not something I'm going to actually remember. <laughs> Anyhow. Bond meets up with his CIA uh, partner, who is not Felix Leiter, but rather Chuck Lee, played by David Jip, who you may remember also from an Indiana Jones movie, uh, Indiana yes. Jones and the Temple oh, of Doom, Doom. replaced Indy's assistant who uh, perishes. Who perishes by telling uh, Indy that to the great mystery beyond, I go first. And, well, <laughs> well, he goes to the great mystery beyond first before uh, James Bond does here. Spoiler alert. Yep. So mm-hmm. so basically, um, Chuck Lee is just he's, 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 he's exposition. The, he's the Felix Leiter, yeah. yeah. His middle name could have been exposition as well. It, it, he could have shared that with Tanner. It abs- Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe they're related. Maybe, maybe. They, maybe they grew up in, in London together. I That's don't know. A, who knows? I don't know. But anyway, so he gives uh, 007 the 411. About how the people, these businessmen are connected to Bond, how Mortner is actually Hans Glaub, and he was a concentration camp doctor scientist who worked in genetics. And this is so, this this immediately made me think of uh, the Man from Uncle movie uh-huh. and how I feel like I kind of wonder if they stole it from this. Or if that is that just a spy trope, the Nazi scientist trope? Oh, it absolutely is because yeah. when you when the, uh, when you're when you're working in a place where there's no boundaries as and no moral boundaries exactly. as to what you're capable of doing, the Nazis in the '80s were sort of like stand-ins for the Soviets in a lot of hmm. certain things. Yeah, because at that point in time, everything that had happened during World War II with the concentration camps and everything else had kind of taking precedence people it was in the it was in the, the zeitgeist people just, right you know you these crazy russian scientists marathon man helped with that a lot or i'm sorry not marathon man marathon man yes but also the boys from brazil mm-hmm. really kind of threw that whole thing into the public consciousness but i mean anytime you had a bad scientist they were nazi scientists <laughs> they're nazi scientists they were old nazi scientists you yes. didn't have any young nazi scientists nope. you only had old nazi scientists we had our own Old Nazi scientists. They sent us to the moon. Everybody knows about Operation Paperclip. If you don't, look it up. It's very interesting. But the Russians need, got the other half. Up. I don't even know what that is. You don't I'm know gonna, what Operation Paperclip is? No, I'm going to have to look that oh, up. Oh, well, we could go another four hours if you want to go on that. But let's well, not do that. Yeah, let's I'll let not you do, do your own independent research. We'll discuss it later. Indeed. Um, but basically what it amounted to is USA got a bunch of German scientists. Russian got a bunch of German scientists. And they obviously got this guy, Hans Glaub, 
Glaub. Glaub. Um, who was a geneticist and uh, did his geneticist thingy with people and now horses. And anyway, so he tells Bond who Glaub is and did steroids for the Russian Olympic people that experimented on pregnant women in the concentration camps. Most of them died, but the ones that lived were very intelligent and also very psychotic. And right. then Bond's like, oh, let's put two and two together. Uh. Oh, he's about the right age. Uh, maybe Zora's one of those. <laughs> he's certainly psychotic. Yeah, and he's very handsome, I might add. Looks a little bit like David Bowie in this movie. Yeah, I wonder why. Interesting. Oh, interesting, interesting. I'm not a fan of his music. Um, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Need earmuffs for this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Wavelength, baby. Yes. Wavelength. Anyway, so after giving us all this information about why Mag Zorn is actually a really bad guy, right? We then go talk to local fishermen. Local. local this f- is so random. Why? First of all, the, okay. <laughs> Chuck Lee is a CIA agent whose cover is that he works in a crab shack on the wharf. Why is he talking to a local fisherman about all of the things that Zorin is doing? And how does he know a reporter who wants to hear about it? Oh, boy. I mean, in my head, I'm like, what's this backstory? Yeah, what's his cover story for all this? Obviously, if he's getting soft-shell crab, maybe he's getting them from this guy in the crabbing boat, and he hears a bitching about it. But what's the impetus to say, I'm going to bring in a reporter I was telling you about to talk about it? He's like, hey, Jeff, come here. <laughs> right. Well, I got then, this. I got this reporter friend of mine, <laughs> and I swear to God, this guy gets off the boat and he starts off like he thought he was still in Maine, <laughs> and then quickly he's like, "Oh no, I'm not there. I'm in San Francisco. I need to dial this back." <laughs> so he went from being Quint in Jaws to just Bob the Fisherman right. on Fisherman's Wharf. And he's explaining that probably the worst written line, it's it's that, no, they, they didn't go anywhere. They just disappeared. Well, if they disappeared, doesn't that mean they went, went somewhere? Because <laughs> if they didn't go anywhere, then they'd probably be at the bottom of the lake. Where or, they're supposed or the, to be. Right. But uh, Bond's like, well, I need to get a closer look. And that's very dangerous. Like, that's yeah, what I'm James Bond. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> so... We cut there to James Bond doing as Scuba Dooba does. Scuba Dooba does. As he pops his head up, takes a look around, he sees there's a couple other people lurking by with recording equipment. At this mm. point, we don't know who these people are. Mm-hmm. Well, anybody who's been paying attention to the movie knows who it is, but we're not supposed to know at this point. Right. I do notice that there's a very yellow Walkman. <laughs> yes, which I'm sure it's for the... That's purely for the audience to identify that it's a recording device that's a recording device and it's probably product placement for, for sony, sony for sure but aside from that it would make no sense in terms of like why would they have a bright bright yellow, yellow thing on a, on a reconnaissance exactly, mission exactly <laughs> exactly but you know hey whatever 85 it's fun 85 85 baby. 85 baby uh so <laughs> bob makes his way to the the pumping device while zorn's up there talking to conley and telling him to turn it up all the way more Full power, more power. <laughs> Although that's not the scene, but no, it's not. But we'll it, get it to applies. that. It applies. It, anyway. it, it completely applies. Basically, they're testing what the nefarious plan is going to be. Zoran wants to know it's all going to work before they do the the full thing. It's kind of like a, a dress rehearsal for it. As they're doing this. Bond makes his way into the pump that they're going to be bringing the water into. I don't, I'm not even sure why he would actually go all the way down into there. If he can see, he's got a flashlight. 
He can see the blades. Well, you know, I think, Do you think the he's going to try and slip past them. Maybe I think he went in there in the attempt to go up. Oh, I to see. To get into where gotcha. where they end up putting uh, Cuisinart in. Later. Right. <laughs> um, that, yes, that makes total sense. Right. Did you get a very Luther vibe at this point? Because I'm like, Luther would have had to bring an arc welder to cut this thing off. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm just like, Luther would have brought the meats to this thing. Indeed, indeed. Because, look, 007 had trouble getting in and even more trouble getting out. Luther would be like, oh, no, we're going to cut this <laughs> thing off and go right through, Ethan. No problem. And how about that crab? That crab deserved an Oscar oh, my for just, God. <laughs> just sitting there. Sitting there, doing nothing, never moving. Somebody in set dressing's like, well... They've been sucking crabs into this thing, so let's put a crab there. <laughs> put a crab there. Let's put a crab there. And then I'm like, it'll be great. How did all the crabs get in there? Because even 007 had trouble getting mm-hmm. in. How the crabs get uh, in? Well, you know, I just, I just don't know. But uh, he goes in there. They start running the pump test. The blades start going. Bond's swimming, swimming. I'm almost to the great. Almost no. almost no. And then at the last second, pulls off his air tank, throws it in, thus saving his own life. But then nearly drowns, getting trapped by the gate that he should have just completely pulled off. Right. But nope, he manages to make it to the top, just barely. And when he gets there, he sees the two people that we saw earlier with the big bright yellow uh, uh, recording device, <laughs> recording device Walkman. scurrying away, but not before managing to plant a mine. One mine. That was weird. That One was a weird. Mine. Yeah. Feels like very like. An afterthought. Like, what were you going to do with your one mine? It's not going to bring that whole platform down. I mean, I don't even think it would kill Zorin from that distance. It wouldn't have done jack shit, so I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Unless it was a diversionary thing. I guess, you know, ooh, look at the big flashing lights while we run away with our big bright yellow recording device. Right. Um, I mean, maybe this is the whole... When he has to disarm it, I wonder if this is to logistically allow Bond enough time to swim to shore. It's a, it's a tension builder. Yeah. It's really what it is. Yeah. We have to do something, but one of them gets away. Cuisinart gets caught. It's taken up. <laughs> Cuisinart. And I like I like how Bayday just very casually walks over, <clears throat> takes the mine. It's a ni- an active mine. And he, she just yanks it yep, off. The- no problem. And I'll go take it to my boss because it's active. <laughs> they clearly did not know how to defuse it because they had to have him defuse it. Right. Why are you carrying an active mine? Which is a little weird because they're both KGB agents. Zoran's KGB. Why wouldn't he I mean, immediately I- know how to disarm something like that? If he's trained by the KGB. I feel like from his standpoint... He- it's a power move. Yeah. Right. I get it from yeah. Zoran. I don't understand why Mayday brings an active mind to her boss. When she could have just gone, oh, and, I can, and her wait. supposed lover. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Here's a bomb. I love you. Here's a bomb. But anyway, she brings it up. Cuisinart's up there with Mayday, <laughs> and he's being held by a couple of goons. Zoran comes walking in there, and we, you know, we realize it's Gogol's guy from the racetrack that, right. you know, Mayday was bench pressing a couple right. of scenes ago. <laughs> After a little bit of extrapolation, he obviously diffuses the mine because we can't because we don't know how to diffuse mines. Right. And they basically um, blame him for what Bond did. Yeah, well, that, and that's the whole reason this scene is there because Max has a taint brought out from the, the pump technicians. And so it's like, oh, well, we don't know Bond's alive because it was obviously this guy that got right. stuck in there. I'm beginning to think that what really happened when they made this movie was they wrote themselves into several different corners. corners yes. And they were like, well, how do we explain this? Well, we do this. But now we have to explain that. Well, right. now we got to write this scene. It was it was the red spot from the cat in the hat strikes back. No matter what they did, that <laughs> damn thing just kept popping up everywhere else. But anyway, um, 
Zoran thinks it's him, so into the Cuisinart he goes. Yep. Full power! <laughs> Ooh! And that's the look of glee on his face when they show him up the portal oh as he's God. getting chewed into little sausagey bits over little, there. Yeah. He's just like, this is great. Into, into chum. I, l- I love it. And then we see the, the speedometer or whatever it is. Oh, the for power the- thing. Yeah. It's pretty fantastic. So the other Russian agent managed to make it back to shore with the bright, shiny yellow recording device. And just as this person's about to get away in her Corvette, (laughs) Bond jumps out and attacks in a scuffle and manages to pull the entire top of her wetsuit off in the fight. It's quite gratuitous. It's super gratuitous. All out. Almost as gratuitous as what you see afterwards. Indeed. Uh, Bond realizes that uh, this is another Russian agent that he's already familiar with. Pola Ivanova. Pola Ivanova. And you're Pola Ivanovas. (laughs) Or as Ben likes to say, you're Tchaikovsky's. Mm-hmm. Um, but we realize they know each other. Zorin's men start looming as they're coming here. So they jump in the Corvette and they bail out. And then we get another hard cut to yet another scene that's completely not related to what the scene was before. Um, <laughs> well, no, it is. Well, I mean, it is, but there's no transition. Yeah, that's the weird thing. There's no change of time. Like, you just have to assume that this is a little bit later on. Right. Well, I mean, there's some bantering in the car between the two of them talking about the mission that they were together with. Yes, that's true. And all of that nonsense. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, it's a James Bond movie. Do you get from driving in a Corvette to being in a Japanese massage parlor bubble bath place? <laughs> Maybe? All I know is is I love this next scene. Oh, my I gosh. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I don't even care that... You know, Austin Powers lampooned it. I don't care. I love this scene. I love it with everything. It's just, it's so over the top. It's so just It, it, it is everything about Roger Moore James Bond movies that I hate encapsulated is, in one scene. Which is why I love it so I much. I love I it so much. You love the chintz on this so much. <laughs> but... We end up going to the, uh, hold on, I have to go on my notes because I wrote the name down of this place because it's so generic. <laughs> the Nippon Relaxation Spa, <laughs> where we find we find Bond and uh, Pola in a gigantic wooden sauna tub with bubbles. With bubbles. With bubbles. Conveniently, strategically placed bubbles. Indeed. Um <laughs> Flirty, flirty. You the, know, bubbles, the bubbles. They tickle my <laughs> Tchaikovsky. <laughs> well, yes. Um, it's important to point out that there is at this point a boombox with Japanese music playing in the background. Yes. Bond decides to get out and change the music to enhance the mood. Yes. Mm. Um, and he puts in and starts playing definitely Tchaikovsky. <laughs> Um, and she reacts as any good Russian woman would when Tchaikovsky's being played <laughs> after turning on the bubbles in the sauna. So you get more bubbles in the bubbles. There's some talk about red roses and some other nonsense. And then <laughs> Bond just gets to I it. I shall buy you six dozen red yes. roses. <laughs> Bond just gets to it. He does his bondiness. Now, keeping up his British end. Uh, indeed, indeed. Now, I will say, now this is something I read it was in a tabloid, so I have no idea if there's any truth to it at all. But supposedly, supposedly, the woman that plays Pola Ivanova, Fiona Fullerton, when they were filming this, she wanted to bed Bond. Like, or she literally? Wanted, she wanted to bed uh, Roger Moore. For like, for reals? For reals. Now, this is, now the, again, this is in the 
I don't even like saying the name of the tabloid. It starts with an S. You can make your own conclusions about it. Is there a song about it that goes black hole name of this yeah, uh, tabloid? Yeah, 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 that'd be the one. That'd be the one. <laughs> As a Liverpool fan, I refuse to even say it. So Very fair enough. So yeah, so this particular tabloid supposedly she had the hots for Roger Moore or whatever. So when they leaned in to kiss, she actually went for it. And supposedly afterwards, Roger was like, well, we should probably do the scene again. Over and over again. And (laughs) (laughs) so take from that what you will. Now, I will say that watching the scene, I was like, wow, she does kind of lean into this kiss a little bit more than most normal Raj kisses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why I fancy the scene so much. <laughs> it could, it could, there's a lot of reasons why you fancy the there's scene. There's two then. in particular, but anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> Anywho. So again, Bond finishes keeping the British end up. He's taking a shower and this is where uh, Pola decides that she's going to abscond with the tape mm-hmm. that she had in the Yellow Walkman, and she's going to run away so Bond can't find out what's on the tape. Because this tape basically outlines the entire plan of, of what Zorn's going to do, of what Mainstrike is. So off she goes, running into, she gets into some nondescript American sedan that Gogol, of all people, is driving. Now, this is where we see Gogol's stunt driver. Okay. Because when she initially hurries into the car, the guy who opens up the car door for her and then drives off is definitely not. Okay. Okay. I wish I could go back and watch this. It is. But I'm never going to watch this movie again, so I'm going to take your word for it. It is definitely not Walter Gattel. Hey, this surprises me absolutely not at all. (laughs) Nobody looks like anybody in this movie that's a stunt person. I suppose not. So they get in there, and she's very excited that... Yeah, he's very excited. She's, they're almost giddy. Yeah, they're, they're, and they're just we like pulled one over on 007. And they're literally looking at the tape recorder as it's playing. Right. They're like right. so into it that they they can't even like Well, I can Goggle's not even focused on the road. He's looking at the tape recorder. For the record, she reaches into the robe to pull the tape out, mm-hmm. but she's supposed to be naked under there. Where was she getting that from? Not her bra. Well, it's just between her because I didn't see the... T- I mean, it's between her Tchaikovsky. All right. Between her Tchaikovsky's? All right, fine. <laughs> they plug it in, and it's Japanese music. Because somehow Bond managed to copy that... Chi- well, he didn't copy it. He swapped it. But did he? Because in the... I, I think he swapped boom- it when he changed the music. But if you look at the boombox, if you look at the tape that's in the cassette that she mm-hmm. takes out, somehow it's completely waterproof, this, this Walkman, by the way. I forgot to point that out, that the tape was not damaged even though it had gone in the water. Well, I also find it really funny how careless she is with the cassette tape after she gets out of the water and takes it out of the cassette player. Right. She's like, eee! like just yes. sort of like waving it around in front of her face. Like, Well, when- <laughs> because you have to understand what the importance of the tape is. Right. But it's a black tape with a white label section on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a cassette tape is, look it up on the internet. You'll yeah, understand ask what your I'm dad. saying. Uh, he's got one somewhere that <laughs> he made for his girlfriend in 11th grade. You're probably not going to want to listen to any of those songs. Uh, but anyway. Except maybe the one by Kate Bush. But anyway. Maybe. <laughs> but um, anyway, it's a black tape with a white label on it. The music that is the Japanese music that you see when you're looking at the boombox uh-huh. is a gray tape with a yellow label on it. Oh, somebody was paying but attention. But there was also a black tape in the other deck with a white label on it. So Bond, at some point in time, made a recording of the Japanese music onto a tape that looked like the, the tape that was supposed to go in. And then after they he kept the British end up, swapped out those two tapes, 
making her think that the one with I'm going to have to rewatch this scene. <sighs> I don't want you to do that. Oh no, but I love this scene. I don't. <laughs> All right. Well, you have other reasons, I suppose. Anyway, I'm sorry that went on way too long. But the bottom line is, <laughs> the tape that had the music on originally was not that. He made a copy of it. Right. And you can see that they get it in there. They think it's the master plan. Nope. It's Japanese music. I also know the ghost. I also think it's funny that Bond doesn't leave the spa. He just hangs out there and takes notes. Yep. Like Yeah, he starts listening to what the Cuz uh, wouldn't you think they would come back? back to try and get the tape? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, again, 80 I don't even think this falls as an 85. This is just it's Bond not, logic. This is just yeah. The Russians just decide, "Oh, 007 so much better than us. We're not even going to bother and I don't know, Gogol went and played with their Tchaikovsky's." <laughs> I don't even know how this works. We're going to get in so much trouble for this episode. Oh my God. How are we? If we haven't gotten in trouble for the other 30 some odd we've done, we're not going to get in trouble for this one. (laughs) All right. All right. So Bond using the information that he's transcribed from the the tape that he absconded with (laughs) decides to go to the Department of Conservation Mm -hmm. at City Hall. Sure. And I'm not understanding (laughs) why conservation. Maybe city planning. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but whatever. We're going to run with it. Maybe that was the only wing they would open to them. Mm. I don't know. I didn't see Harry Callahan anywhere in the scene over there. <laughs> and he would have been contemporary here, surely. Wouldn't that have been great if... if, if Dirty Harry just Dirty showed Harry up. Dirty Harry just shows up in a Bond movie for the rest of it? <laughs> That'd be amazing. What are you after? <laughs> Maybe I could help. Who's the bad guy? I've always wanted to work with you. Let's go do this, Bond. <laughs> What is that little gun, a Beretta? Look at my pistol. The forty-four Magnum. Most powerful handgun in the world. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. My apologies. Let's get back to what we're doing. Um, so he goes to the Department of Conservation, posing once again as a reporter. That's like his side gig. Remember, remember when Bond used to be an importer of things? Yes. Now he's a reporter of things. Yes, well. Because that's what gets him where he needs to go, indeed. I guess. He has so many covers in this movie. Does he have more? Does he have more covers in this movie than any other Bond movie? I think. I think he might. I I think think he might. He's a reporter for this. He's a horse owner for that, and he has a name for every single one of them too. So he's kind of like Fletch in this particular thing. I feel like he's just (laughs) pulling out random Fletch names. (laughs) The next one's John Frankenjinson. Yeah, Harley Weewax. Yeah. Didn't know. I guess Fletch was in L.A. and not San Francisco. I'm not going off on another tangent. Right, I right, promise. Right, anyway, all right. all right. So he's talking to this bureaucratic guy, asking questions about how this plan could possibly pull over, and he asks him about why you would pump salt water, and the salt water is about testing the lines without running oil through it. So in case there's a leak, it's only leaking salt water. Once again, pseudoscience. Ben. Not a fan. Yeah, I'm. Oh, this is right when I start to sort of my eyes start to glaze over in this movie because it's just there's so much talk about. Well, the water's we shouldn't be pumping water in this way, or we should be pumping water out this way, or isn't there oil supposed to be pumped through this line? Why would you pump water? Th- I don't care. I think it gets to a point where the viewer doesn't care what's going on. Like, exactly. We just want to know what he intends to do. Right. And you can find ways around all the pseudoscience so that you don't need a perfect explanation for everything. That's the thing. I think nobody you, needs a detailed explanation of a Bond villain's plan, right? right. And again, I, I know I keep going back to Superman, but li- they literally stole this idea from Superman, you know, <laughs> where we're going to set off a fault line. And even though we're, me and you are guilty of 
dissecting these movies and their logic. The thing is, is if they wrote it correctly without getting too specific, you actually take out a lot of that. Yes. It actually it's allows... It's exposition that no one gives a flying crap about. Right, and it allows the audience to come to their own conclusions about how it was actually achieved. All you have to say is, well, he's going to put a huge bomb in the bottom of a mine that will set off the San Andreas Fault Exactly. Done. That's all you need to That's know. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to drop a nuke on the San Andreas Fault to activate the fault. There was no explanation from Lex Luthor about how that was going to do. I'm doing it at the exact epicenter where the two plates meet. And this, There's none of that. Right. Lex Luthor's like, it's a nuke. It's got to work, right? Right. I'm the smartest man in the world. And you're like, well, he's the smartest man in Superman's world. If he drops a nuke, he's going to do what he says it is because he's Lex Luthor. Right. Oh, you're done. And they get so, it's just, I'm not even going to say it's academic because it's Probably not. It's, it's very not <laughs> academic. <laughs> right. Because I don't think the science stands. And that makes it even less believable yeah. than just saying, my plan is to put water here <laughs> and everything falls into the ocean. That, that's, that's, that's it. That's all you need right. to get through in, any of this. Right. And instead, they just they write themselves into corner after corner after corner to explain science that doesn't need explaining. Exactly. So, But, you know, it's anyway. a hallmark of the film. Yeah. Yeah. 85, baby. 85. So he gets through all of this, and in the most awkward, I gave you an entire interview, but I don't know what your name was because you didn't introduce yourself. Right. Uh, the guy's like, Mr. Oh, uh, James something else. Stock. James Stock. James yes. Stock, the Financial <laughs> Times or the whatever. Fi- the Financial Times. But he didn't introduce himself at the interview. He just did, right. did But whatever. So Bond's getting into the elevator as he stops it because he sees Miss Sutton over there chatting with this guy, talking about some discrepancies or irregularities. They end up going into his office. Bob's your uncle. We're done with that. So Bond's like, I know that. I'm going to tell her. I'm going to, going to tell her. And then I'm going to get some tail. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So he follows her to her gigantic house. <laughs> this house is so big, she can't even afford furniture for all of it. That's how big it is. <laughs> She's house poor. She's totally house poor. I, I have this gigantic house, but I can do nothing with well, it. Well, she inherited it. It's she fine. did. She really does bring out why it's all like that. But, you know, Bond goes through, sneaky, sneaky. And what's up with this sharper image thing? <laughs> you know, I did not remember that at all until I rewatched this. And I'm like, a sharper image card is, is the gadget that gets him in the window? Well, and I couldn't understand... Or is that just... Is it just a sharper image credit card? Right. Did they make a credit card? They did, but it had lights on it. Well, maybe that's the Q branch part of it. Maybe they... But what does a a light have to do with opening a window that you could open with a credit card? I have no idea. I looked to try and find... I want. I I got so (laughs) mad at this on my first viewing. I paused it to go see what... Is there something in Bond lore that explained if this was an electromagnet that moved things right. like latches? There's not a damn thing about this in there. <laughs> so I get a sharper image credit card. They did have them. Right. That's all you usually need to get those window latches open. Why are there lights on it? Maybe she had some sort of alarm. Maybe maybe it diffused the alar- alarm. Yeah. You know, we didn't get a lot of in this was Q explaining gadgets. Yeah. I mean, most of the gadgets are sort of self-explanatory. They are self-explanatory. This one, however, was not. Right. But we didn't, this movie did not have that traditional, now pay attention, 007. It really wasn't in there. That's one of the things that, that's one of my favorite elements of of Bond movies. I agree. So, yeah, definitely missed. But, I mean, this movie already feels like it's five hours long, so. This this podcast certainly (laughs) is going to be by the time we're done. Anyway, so he gets in, uses the the sharper image thing that you can probably buy at sharper image and break into the girl's house of your choice. 
choice. Um, he starts walking up the stairs, and then we get the worst jump scare ever. <laughs> that cat. I want to say that they've used that exact same sound effect of a cat. In every Hollywood movie for the last 70 years. Yes. And no cat sounds like that. No, they don't. I have two cats. I've never heard my cat sound like that. <laughs> of course, you've never, you know, I've broken never, into somebody else's house. I've and never scared off my cats either. I guess there's that. So he gets upstairs, finds Stacy, and, and well, he hears the shower running. Yeah. Because she's clever enough to try and, oh, I know there's somebody in my house. I'm going to fake him out because I'm hot. And if he hears me in the shower, he's going to want to check that out. And so <laughs> well, it's it James Bond. So he goes in and politely turns off the shower, which I have to say was a nice touch. <laughs> well, we don't want to waste water. <laughs> and he turns around. There she is with a shotgun pointed at his face. And he tries to, for some reason, still stick with the reporter scheme. He doesn't just come up. He and, still doesn't break cover. He doesn't. Like, what's the point of maintaining your cover here? And then she she's going to call the cops. He says, well, you know, you're going to have some trouble. And I like how she doesn't even phase. It doesn't, the threat doesn't phase her at all. I'm like, you know, you can talk to the cops about that asshole. And, picks <laughs> right. and then the phone's not working. And he's like, oh, well, I didn't cut the phone lines. And then we see a sneaky, sneaky shadow bad guy with a gun go by there. Right. And then he's like, oh, you couldn't possibly handle this gun yourself. Get out of the way, woman. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Because that's literally what he did. Oh, it, it's... 85. 80. 85. <laughs> Going on 65 on no the, in doubt. this moment. 63 maybe? Yeah, yeah. Um, pushes her out of the way, starts shooting bad guys left and right. And I like he even shoots one guy in the ass, <laughs> which you find out it's loaded with rock salt, so it's not really doing any damage to right. them. But then you think, he shot a guy in the ass with rock salt, and that guy's still moving. It probably hurt like hell. It sure, because it might have got his ghibli bits. <laughs> the way he was hanging on that. And then here's my favorite thing. It's like getting hit with a BB gun, probably. Like a really high-powered BB gun. Except that the salt continues to sting inside you when it's in there. That's true. I may yeah. or may not have been hit with a BB gun and with rock salt from a BB gun at oh. some point in time in my life. Oh, okay. Fair enough. It stings. It st it's not pleasant. It's <laughs> in the pause it's crazy <laughs> but james bond what a shooter i could shoot a shotgun in between a stairwell railing yes and not only hit the guy on the chandelier with the rock salt but not damage <laughs> the stairwell railing at the same time yes Good job, 007. I also like in this fight how James is trying so hard not to break the urn. So the second Batman moment. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> you just can't get rid of a bomb. That's all I kept thinking of was Adam West rolling holding, around with this cartoon bomb with a fuse. Holding the giant bomb over his head. Right. And then I don't understand also... so. They don't have a working gun, and yet the guys run away. Exactly. The goons just There's run away. There's five of these guys that They're could have easily <laughs> taken them. I know, and then they just leave. And one of us running, wait for me. <laughs> Ridiculous. 85. 85. So, we, <laughs> so Bond, Bond makes a quiche. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Bond and Sutton watch them leave, go back into the house. Bond's like, uh, would you like something to eat? And I don't really cook. Like, that's all right. I dabble, you know, and then, then I, comes your cast iron skillet. I might add hmm. the well seasoned cast Indeed. iron skillet. That is <laughs> Roger Moore. It's a quiche. It's a quiche. And while it's an, it's an, actually he calls it an omelet. It's a, 
Yeah, well, she it's asked what it is. Right. We all know it's a quiche because we're cultured. Right. We're cultured people. We know what a quiche is. Yeah. Clearly, she's not cultured. She didn't know what a quiche was. But she did have And she to... named her cat Pussy. Although, I'm sure that, yeah. Honestly. We all know why she, the cat is named We Pussy. know why. But you know, if you and I had been writing that movie, the cat's name would have been Galore because we would have taken it to a different level. Right. Right? Right. right. But- while he's co- while Bond's cooking, she has enough time to go upstairs, get cleaned up, put on a dinner dress, <laughs> and to look come down and eat an omelet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Roger Moore's Bond is the breakfast Bond. He, like, he also makes coffee in one of the movies. This is true, but he's really the only one I've ever seen cook. Yeah, it's in the books. So obviously, a person of James Bond's taste right. and knowledge would be able to cook food. Well, I'm not again, saying- Bond knows everything. Bond does. No, <laughs> so while they're working on the quiche, uh, Stacy's explaining that she's a geologist and that Zorn took over her grandfather's oil company. She's been holding out um, for his pressure to buy her out of her land. Although at this point, she's uh, only has a few shares left and this house that her grandfather left her. So she's basically saying she's more or less a destitute city worker. Right. Who really needs that fat five mil that, that Max wrote her. Cause so she can pay the taxes on her house. Well, uh, yeah, but I mean... Five million dollars back then is like what now? It's like twenty. Like twenty or thirty million dollars. I mean right. it was more than just tax money there. She yeah, that's have... like retirement money. That's that's and, a retirement starting right there. <laughs> and I I, I kind of want to point out, other than a couple of key scenes, maybe she should have just kept the money and then after Zoran died, cash the check. Yeah. I mean, why be so defiant? I noticed she didn't throw it away. Maybe she taped it back together. I don't know. But because I'm like, well, nobody else is going to take that money. Right. Why wouldn't you? Ugh, I, yeah, don't this, I don't know. This is just me. But well, anyway. it's blood money. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's blood money. But then she saved everybody's lives at her own peril. I think it's worthwhile. Uh, <laughs> Bond, would, Bond would have kept the money. Oh, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. He absolutely would have kept the money. So, hey, take your share. But he anyway. Put it all on red. Put it all on red. So, um, you get all this backstory on, on Stacy and her situation. After uh, finishing eating, she seems quite enamored with Bond already, as women will do in the Bond movie. When Bond makes them a quiche and... Well, I mean, come on. He made her a quiche. He made her a quiche. A very nice looking quiche, very I might nice, add. Very, very nice. I do like a good quiche, actually. A little less on the quiche Lorraine. Maybe a little bit more ham and cheesy. But you know what? That's right, fine. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Did you, catch, did you catch? She's asking about the food. He's like, oh, what are we going to eat? Whiskers? He literally names <laughs> yeah. a cat food? Probably a product It place. had to be product placement. Totally. But I didn't see the food anywhere else later. It just seems so weird to hear Roger Brown going, Whiskers? Well, you know, back then the product placement wasn't always quite so obvious uh, as in the Craig era. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's much or more the, subtle actually, in the Craig era. Actually, in the Brosnan era is where it really got bad. It really did get very bad, but I digress. Yes. Anyway, so she tells him the phone's disconnected, you know, reminds him the phone's disconnected. Bond's like, well, of course, I worked for Bell Telephone when I was <laughs> a young agent back in the day. I can go rehook up your phone. <laughs> so, and it's up by the bedroom window. I'm sure I can find it. Um, which, of course, he can. It's like he has a magnetic attraction to bedrooms, so it's not like he's going to have a problem. Plus, wasn't he just in there a minute ago? Yeah. But anyway, so Bond's out there fixing it. He goes back into the room. Um, she's asleep. Sleep. No covers on her. No covers on. And this, a- this lace, this... This silky camisole thing yep. and out like a light with yep. the lights on, no less. Yeah. Bond's like, well, uh, I'm not really a rapist. <laughs> not in this one. Not anyway. in this one anyway. <laughs> and so pulls the covers up on her and pulls a, a dashing Roger Craig sleeps on the chair with the gun. Roger Moore. Or, no, I'm sorry, Daniel Craig. <laughs> a dashing Daniel Craig 
Yes. Sitting yes. on the chair. With the gun. Keeping watch. Significantly more attractive. Leah Sadu. Anyway. Uh. <clears throat> sorry. I'm I'm just drifting now. <laughs> Bring it back, Jason. Okay. Right. So, yeah. So Bond covers her up, sits down on the chair, and then basically settles himself in for a short summer's nap until we get to the morning, which, you know, kind of brings us to the end of this portion of this here podcast. Yes, because, I mean, we've been going on for quite some time, and this movie has been going on for quite some time. I mean, literally, it's a two-hour movie that feels like a five-hour movie. Yeah. This is going to be the, the three-hour podcast that feels like an eight-hour podcast. <laughs> But like anything else, just some clever editing of Jason mugging up all the Christopher Walken bits, we might be able to get it down to a decent two and a half hours. It's possible. Or all my mugging of Rogerisms. <laughs> so, it's but, fine. It's but yeah, fine. you know, like we did uh, with our previous installment, we figured maybe we're just going to go ahead and split this one into two parts. Yeah. Give you guys a little bit of a breather, like an intermission. You can go listen to whatever music the that uh, John Barry is going to play at an intermission. That's go, right. Go take a pee. Yeah, yeah. Have a beer. Have a beer. Maybe have several beers. It'll help you get through the last two hours of this have, nonsense. Have a martini. Have several martinis. Yeah, do whatever you need to do to get through. But then you can come on back and listen to the second part of this wonderful podcast about A View to a Kill. A View to a Kill. But uh, we always like to remind you that uh, if, if you're enjoying our shenanigans and our endless uh, imitations of Christopher Walken and Roger Moore. Um, we're always looking for listener interaction and feedback. So uh, please let us know. Give us a, give us a ring. Give us an email. Our email is CICDeadDrop at gmail.com. On Instagram, it is uh, Central Intelligence Cinema, separated by underscores, or on Twitter, at CIC SpyPod. So please come Come interact with us. Yeah. We're, we're pretty nice fellas. Yeah. I like to think we're pretty nice fellas. We are pretty nice fellas. And if you're coming back, you're coming back for a reason. So come on back. That's right. And if you are coming back and you are for a reason, and I realize we have our tens of listeners who may have or may not have already heard this pitch a gajillion times, but hey, if you like what you're listening to, give us a five-star review. Give us a five-star <laughs> review. <laughs> That's all we're asking for. Five. One, two, three, four, five. Feed the algorithm. Feed the algorithm. <laughs> Because, you know, when you do this, it makes us uh, more apparent to other people who might think that this level of idiocy that we produce for you on a semi-frequent basis <laughs> is something that they might like to enjoy as well. Indeed. So, you know, give us a review. Put it on there. If you send us a good one, it's likely to end up on the air. It's indeed, good indeed. stuff. And I know somebody's throwing swag around. I'm throwing lots of swag around. So opportunities abound. But, you know, leave us a podcast. Tell us what you think. Go through the channels. Tell us what you'd like to see, what you don't like, what you think is awesome. We want to hear. We want to make this a podcast that everyone enjoys. So we want to hear what you're saying from us. Indeed. So indeed. And while I'm just, uh, while we're shouting out to people, shout out to Ireland, dude. <laughs> so <laughs> I was looking at our uh, numbers and we had a phenomenal number of downloads from Ireland recently. Well, thank you. So thanks, Ireland. We appreciate that. We appreciate your listenership. Absolutely. And continue to listen more. Indeed. Well, with that, I'm Ben. I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem, and part two of A View to a Kill. Woo!